Hey everyone, we'll start in around five minutes. Thanks for coming, for being patient. Yeah, in the meantime, feel free to look at the, um, at the paper. And um, yeah, we'll discuss this paper with, um, with our guest speaker here today. So he's, um, he's a researcher in the Division of Sleep Medicine at Harvard Medical School. So, um, yeah, we'll start in a few minutes. This will be really interesting. Thank you. Yeah, thank you, Tomoko. Nice seeing you. <laughs> I'm glad. Um, hi, how are you? Hi, hi, how are you? Good, good. Thank you. Um, how do I pronounce your name right? <laughs> Shahop. <laughs> no, that's fine. Shahop. Shahop? Yes, that's right. Perfect. And your last name? Oh, that's hard. Hagoyuk. Hagayak. Yeah, that's close. Yeah. <laughs> okay, cool. I'll try my best. I'm not <laughs> names to be honest, but I'll try my best. Thank you so much for coming. Hi, Mayor. Yeah. Hard to meet our guest speaker. Hello, hello. How you doing, uh, Doctor? Welcome to uh, Science Society. Are you are you new on uh, Clubhouse? Uh, this is my first time. Nice, nice. Well, welcome, <laughs> welcome aboard. You know, Thank you. You're gonna be a. Uh, you'll be surrounded by a bunch of brains. These rooms should be fun for you too. Um, <laughs> yeah. Uh, because you know, the, the crowd here is pretty scientific, so it's oh, cool. think of it as a as a crowd of your peers, right? So you can mm. kind of get technically, and uh, these are always great learning rooms. So thanks for being here. Welcome. Thank you. Thank you for inviting. How was your day, everyone? Everyone had a good day today? Yes, ma'am. It was good. How about you, Katerina? Yeah. Yeah, pretty pretty okay. This week was a lot of work. But <laughs> so what's new in your world? Uh, oh, a bunch of things. Like, we are planning to write some work. And I got the new puppy. If you heard, <laughs> oh, nice, good for you. Though they, 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 yeah, they, they really helped. <laughs> she was like the first two days was like the nicest dog, and now she is being just a regular, you know, just a puppy, like chewing on everything, and she is feeling totally comfortable to do everything nice. that the puppy. <laughs> which is good it's a it's a healthy sign so that'd be a good idea to get uh, uh i'm wondering i'm wondering if pet sales i would imagine they should have increased during the pandemic right like a lot of people would have got lonely and got pets you know 
Yeah, you could get There was right. like long waiting lists and you couldn't even get one. Now it's kind of back to normal, I think. I'm not sure. Hi, my hair. During lockdown in the Netherlands, a lot of people bought a dog because they're allowed to walk the dog. And other, otherwise, it's hard to go on the street. So, yeah, hundreds of thousands extra dogs in Holland. And Shahab, very beautiful topic you're researching. One of my best friends, Dan, who is sleeping currently because it's three o'clock in the Netherlands, is actually working on sweat measurements during the night. And I'd really, really like to uh, link into what your research is showing. It's, it's cool. He has a cooling device in the mattress that is very simple, but works very well for increasing quality of sleep. So yeah. I'm interested in your talk. Thanks so much <laughs> thank and thank you. you for your research. Yeah, thank you very much. Hey, wait, Shabab, where, where are you from? Uh, originally from Iran. From Iran, okay. So how do we say, you? is it Shabab uh, Hagai? Shabab Hagayik. Hagayik, okay. Yeah. So Dr. Hagayik, got it, thank you. <laughs> thank you. Yeah, I think we can we can slowly start and um, go from there. Um, I'll introduce you. Uh, first okay. and then um, so welcome everyone to Science Society and of course a special welcome to our guest speaker here Dr. Chab Hagat. I'm really bad with names and um, to give you I will give you a little bit of an introduction so everyone gets to know you a little bit um, so um, um, you are working at the division of sleep medicine at Harvard Medical School and um, you did actually a bachelor at the Sharif University of Technology and then a Master of Science at Sharif University of Technology. And you did another two uh, masters <laughs> yeah. um, in statistics and in engineering at the University of Texas at Austin. And then you did a PhD at the University of Texas at Austin in biomedical engineering. Yes. And then you went ahead to um, do research at the Harvard um, School of Public Health. Um, and that's where um, you are in the medical school right now. So you have so many degrees. <laughs> I don't know how you did that, but it's so it's amazing um and i you know it's 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 wonderful to have you here and to have your really interesting research that you're sharing with us here and we usually start by asking a couple of interview questions if that's okay and then we go kind of into your research yeah sure perfect uh serena do you want to go ahead well sure so um you know, in order to give the audience a, you know, an insight and vision into how you, you know, the, the scientific mind and how you became what you are today, we like to ask the question of, so was there something in your inner early life 
you know, perhaps your childhood or perhaps adolescence. Uh, when did you know that you really wanted to be a scientist? Uh, well, my parents, both my parents uh, were teachers, so, uh, and also my sister. So basically, uh, everyone in our family is teacher. And I was interested in become teacher. Uh, and after I started like my bachelor, I also got as a, I think it was during the, my last years of bachelor that I was really excited about doing also research in addition to teaching. So that's why I keep uh, moving forward with like uh, to getting the PhD to find uh, to like become a faculty to both teach and do the research. So yeah, for about the teaching part, I I know that I like it from my family and. About the research part, that's something I got interested in during my bachelor. Yeah, thank you. That's uh, that's interesting. <laughs> right, right, right. So, if if you could, if you could tell us then, uh, what what particular you know circumstances, you know, guided you on the way to what you will tell us about today. Uh, so, uh, actually my past changed a lot, but I, when I went to university, uh, I started with mechanical engineering, my bachelor, and, uh, I didn't have that, I didn't have a real idea about like, what would it be? Uh, I knew that I like physics and I know mathematics, but I was not real familiar with, the. Uh, what I will do with the mechanical engineer as a job in future. So I started in mechanical engineer and especially specifically working on like heat transfer. And then I, after I finished like my, uh, I also did my master in mechanical engineering heat transfer, but it was, I, at that point I noticed that I like to do something like more close to medical stuff or biomedical stuff, not, not so mechanically. Uh, so that's when I applied for like University of Texas at Austin for my PhD and uh, the closest thing I could find was like using the heat transfer to look at like the body thermoregulation and body heat transfer. So when I started at uh, UT Austin, I started with like body heat transfer and then since the like body transfer was close to uh, is associated with like sleep patterns and sleep uh, and circadian rhythms. I got excited to study the relationship between these two. Uh, and while I was doing this, uh, I took a course in the statistics and I, not I noticed that I like it. I took another course and I kept taking courses in the statistics. And at some point I saw that I almost got a degree in the statistics and I finished that degree. and. Right now, what I'm doing is like combination of both engineering and a little physiology, and also uh, uh, using like artificial intelligence and statistics, or so combination of all of this. But basically, I moved with the, with the fellow. Uh, when I thought that I like this field, this thing, I just uh, started to learning, and then it happened that I, I could combine it with my previous uh, experience and knowledge and move forward with that. It's so fascinating how we we move forward in life, and this this is a great story. 
Um, so thank you for bringing us to your present research. And um, at this point, I want to give you the mic. The audience is able to follow the link above. And at this point, you know, you can decide whether you want to proceed with your talk interactively or if you want to provide the body of your talk and then do a Q&A afterwards. Uh, so we'll leave that up to you. And we can handle, you know, questions from the audience in the chat, or um, however you'd like to proceed. So I think here. interactive should be fine. Uh, however you guys prefer, but interactive is fine with me. Okay. So at this point, the bike is yours, and we hope you have a, a you know, present a comfortable talk. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, okay, so basically, what I will talk is mostly about like uh, body, how our body thermoregulation system can control sleep and how we can benefit from that to improve our sleep. So to do that, uh, I think I should start with like the uh, the body temperature circadian rhythm, which means that uh, our body temperature, the core body temperature, the inside temperature is not constant during 24 hours. It is a little uh, higher in the morning. Then in the early afternoon, when uh, we feel a little sleepy, we have a, a little drop in the body temperature and it goes up again after that uh, until like one to two hours before our sleep time. Uh, and then uh, at that point, it starts a drop and almost at the middle of our, our nighttime sleep, it goes to its lowest level. Uh, and after that, again, before we wake up, we have an increase in our core body temperature. And this happens uh, every 24 hours. And it turns out that uh, this is one of the main uh, mechanisms that control the sleep-wake cycle. It's not the only one, but this is one of the main ones. In addition to that one, for example, there's melatonin. But melatonin is one of the, one of the way that melatonin also works is by controlling is uh, by controlling the body temperature. So, actually, that the path that uh, melatonin control sleep part of that is through the body temperature. Uh, so, uh, so basically, by looking at that, we can see that uh, we have the main thing. The important part for us was that we need a drop before uh, we fall to sleep. We need a drop in body temperature before we fall asleep. Uh, so now let's see what are the mechanisms for like controlling the core body temperature. There are different mechanisms. The famous ones that we are uh, all familiar with that is like sweating when uh, when we feel hot, or like shivering when we feel, when we feel cold, which makes a little uh, heat in our body and it warm up the body. These are the mechanisms that all of us are familiar. But that's uh, this one is not the main mechanism for the controlling the body temperature. The, the main one is through the, uh, the blood flow. So basically, uh, our blood flow can, uh, can get the heat from the core and bring it to the surface when we need it to like, lose the heat to the environment, bring it to the surface and lose it to the environment. Uh, in order to do that, uh, so basically there are two types of, we can say that there are two types of vessels in uh, this, if we, are, we want to look at the heat transfer aspect of the body. 
one type of vessels which are capillaries are for not for nutrition purpose so uh, that's where uh, the blood goes and uh, to nutrition uh, to do the nutrition to the cells but there is also another type of vessel which are the important one for the uh, body transfer which are called the arteriovenous anastomas avas these are actually the uh, direct connection between arteries and veins so and the specific uh, the, the specific property about these vessels which are very important is that they can easily vasodilate and vasoconstricted and when they are vasodilated their diameter is like 10 times of a capillary uh, and uh, the ABS are mostly I mean the majority of them are in the glabrous skin areas which are the areas that we don't have hair like the hands and feet and the ear and forehead so these are the main parts that we have the ABS and the between all of these the most important ones are hands and feet and when these ABS are fully opened like 50% of our blood flow can go just to this uh, to this area uh, and that's actually the way that uh, body control the, the its temperature by uh, by by redistribution of the blood flow in the body so basically when for example when the the body temperature is high the hypothalamus receives the message that the body the body temperature is high so it opens up the avias in the hands and feet then the, when the avias are open up more blood flow goes from the core to the surface of hands and feet this blood flow brings the heat from the core to the hands and feet and uh, rejected to the environment so the blood cool down and the cool blood goes uh, goes back to the core of our body and get the heat again and brings it to the surface and lose it to the environment so that's how it uh, our body lose the temperature and lower its temperature and uh, when the when for example it's cold uh, the vasoconstriction happen in hands and feet so the blood flow doesn't go to these areas and the body keeps its heat uh, it hits its heat in in itself so the it tries to do, increase the body temperature or at least not lose the temperature uh, so this is the this is the mechanism that you wanted to that's that's the most important to control the body temperature so by knowing these two now we can look at how we can control the the sleep pattern by controlling the body temperature uh, in 2019 we did a study to just look at the very simple thing if uh, if we'll, we take a warm bath or shower before sleep time does it help us to fall asleep or not that was the the question for that study uh, and that was a, actually a meta-analysis a systematically run meta-analysis and we found that uh, when we take the shower uh, the warm shower like one to two hours before our sleep time it actually improved uh, our sleep onset latency which means the time that uh, the the duration of the time that we go to bed until we fall asleep so when we take the warm bath like one to two hours before we go to bed uh, that duration that takes us to fall asleep is much shorter and uh, that happens by the, the by the body heat transfer so when we take the the warm bath uh, actually uh, more blood flow comes to the surface of our hands and feet and this blood flow brings the heat and uh, therefore so we take the warm bath but our body temperature after the bath goes down so that's that might be a little confusing because we expect that when we take warm bath the body temperature should goes up but that's the otherwise the other way 
when we take a warm bath after that the body temperature goes down because the avias the, the vessels in the surface of our body and surface of the skin especially the avias are opened up and then the body lose the temperature to the environment and therefore when okay okay wait a minute hold up so i you just said um th- I'm sorry, I, I couldn't hear you very well, Serena. Could you maybe, do you have internet issues? Or is it just on my side? I couldn't hear. Okay. Um, yeah, I th- I, we can't hear you really well right now. I don't, I don't know what's, what's going on. Maybe you want to write in the chat or, and then I'll ask us the question. All right, let me make a quick interjection, guys, here uh, on for the Science Society here. Uh, real quick, guys. Um, okay, everybody in the audience, right, if you could do me a favor, right, hit the share button. Seriously, guys, come on. Uh, this kind of content here is very uncommon on Clubhouse, right? So we need to, and, and Katarina here has been doing a great job bringing on, you know, uh, if you look at the history of this club, it's like, you know, she's, it takes time and energy to go out and, and talk to doctors and bring them on board and put on a uh, event. So if you could, let's, let's hit that share button, please get more folks on here. And then another thing I'd request you do is if you can come on here on stage, we'd really appreciate it. Why? It also helps the club out, right? You come up on here, it shows up in your profile. Um, it's, so it kind of spreads the replay. So a lot, a lot, especially this content coming out of this club here, this is like replay worthy right like it's good scientific knowledge it'll spread so if you guys uh, like what you hear here um you know follow the science society uh club but also jump on stage raise your hand come on up here i'll invite some of you up here and uh uh come on up and let's let's help uh, uh bring more exposure to uh katarina's work and serena here and uh this is a great club i just i, I don't usually do this <laughs> you know but uh, promote this, this heavily in a, in a club. Actually, I, I don't think I know when I last did that, but uh, I really like this club, guys. Let's let's spread the word. Thank you. Thank you so much, and um, yeah, I appreciate. It. Please continue with your presentation. Thank you. Yeah, sure. Yeah, I had a question, but I've already forgotten the context. So please continue. Uh, okay. Uh, so, so basically, our fun, our findings in that study was that when we take a warm bath or shower, it helps our body to lose the temperature, and we have a drop in body temperature, uh, and that helps us to fall asleep faster. Uh, and then the next step for us was to see if we can apply this this concept, this simple concept, on a on a mattress system to see. Uh, without like taking a shower when you go to bed, you just turn on your mattress and it helps you to fall asleep. So to do that, uh, actually, we had another line of studies on body temperature. We started that like several years ago, and uh, that was mainly for the uh, to control the body temperature during anesthesia. But then we applied this for the sleep time, and the idea behind that is uh, very simple. So. We want to control the body temperature. Now let's uh, imagine that you are in a room and you set the temperature in the the coolest possible temperature, but you still feel it's hot in the room. So what can we do? One solution can be 
you bring a hair dryer and blow hot hot air to the, just the thermostat, not not the whole room. You just warm up the thermostat, so the thermostat thinks that the whole room temperature is high, and therefore it turns on the AC and the whole room temperature goes down. So you selectively warm up just a small area of the room, which is important for the as for the thermal property, and then you can lower the the room temperature. We wanted to do the same thing. So basically, we wanted to uh, lower the body temperature by selectively warm up just a small part of the body. Uh, and then the, what's that part? So we have different, uh, we have the thermal sensor all over our body. So that's how we feel hot and cold with our skin. But some of, uh, some of these sensors are more important for our body than the others uh, because they are closer to our core. And by core, I mean like the brain and the heart. So for example, if a thermal sensor in your neck area detect a hot temperature, but another, uh, another sensor in like your foot area detect a cold temperature, the body gives more attention to the one that is uh, closer to the core, which is the neck one, not to the, uh, not to the foot one. So that's actually the main part of uh, the main sensors of our body. So the main message goes, these are the most important one. The body prioritizes these sensors. So uh, we use this method uh, by just warming up uh, the neck area to open up the, to trick the body. So the body thinks that the body temperature is high and it opens up the, uh, the AVAs in the hands and feet and uh, more blood flow goes to that, go to that area and drop the body temperature. Uh, we use that uh, uh, for like the, during the day for and the purpose was to open up the ABS to control the body temperature for during the anesthesia. But we could use also the same method for a sleep. So that's how we made the mattress. So we just warm up the neck area with like for for a short duration, like 30 minutes or 15 minutes at the beginning that you go to bed. That tricks the body that the whole body temperature is high, open up the AVAs and blood flow goes to hands and feet and the body temperature drops. But in addition to that, we also use a dual temperature mattress, uh, which, which had a, a little warmer peripheral area and a little cooler central area. The reason for that is uh, for like the warmer peripheral area is that, and by warmer, I mean the temperature in that area is still a little lower on uh, lower than our core body temperature, but when you touch it, you, you can feel a little high, uh, higher than the room temperature. But we didn't want to go above the body temperature because uh, heat transfer is always from the higher temperature to the lower temperature. So we need to the environment temperature be lower than our core body temperature. So the heat transfer would be from our body to the environment and the heat goes from our body to the environment and the body temperature drops. And the reason that we didn't cool down that area that much is because when you cool down uh, some area, local vasoconstriction can happen in those areas. This is one reason. So if we cool down like hands and feet, although we are warming up the neck, when you cool down that area, it might uh, cause a little vasoconstriction because uh, that cooling that in that area cause closing the, the vessels. And the other reason is that uh, there are also studies that shows that uh, not only the body temperature controls sleep, 
but also the difference between the temperature of our hands and hands and feet and the uh, the central area of our body is the one that that helps falling asleep. So whenever when we have like a higher difference between the temperature of hands and feet and the the central of our body, that also is called distal proximal temperature. The higher distal proximal temperature is also associated with shorter sleep duration, shorter sleep onset duration. So basically, when we warm up that area a little, it helps in two ways. It increases the distal proximal temperature, and it also helps the body, helps to open up the areas and uh, like uh, lose uh, body lose its temp its heat to the environment and lower the the body temperature, and that improves the sleep onset. And then we cool down the central area a little, and again, not too much to cause vasoconstriction, just a little bit. And the reason for that is that we don't have that many AVs. We actually don't have AVs in like the central area on our back. So the main uh, heat transfer mechanism in that area would be uh, conductive heat transfer, which means that between surface and surface. So. Whenever we have a higher temperature difference between the two surfaces, we would have more uh, more heat transfer, higher amount of heat transfer between these two surfaces. So when we cool down that area a little bit, that helps to direct heat transfer from our uh, our core to the to the mattress system. And as I, as I said again, it also uh, increases the distal proximal different temperature. So because that distal proximal is the difference between temperature of hands and feet and the central area. So when we warm up a little the uh, peripheral area and we, we cool down the central area, so that also helps us uh, to fall asleep. Uh, and we tested this on like uh, some subjects uh, and for testing that we asked subjects to come to our our lab like for one afternoon to become familiar with like the sleep environment, we, they slept like, for a few hours there, but we did not record any data. Just we turned on the bed, we, tur um, we turned off all the lights and connected all the sensors to them to become uh, to make them familiar with the lab environment. Uh, and then we did two nights of a study, so one night control and one night uh, treatment. And uh, it was randomly assigned for some subjects. The, the first night was like the, the control night for some subjects, the second night was the control night. Uh, and we measured uh, uh, all these parameters. So we measured like the sleep quality, we measured the distal paroxysmal temperature, that, which is like the connected temperature sensors to hands and feet and uh, uh, the central area of body to kind of, to measure that uh, distal paroxysmal temperature. We measured their core body temperature, uh, which, which happens with like some kind of capsules that they take it and it uh, transfers the body temperature to a receiver. Uh, we measured their blood flow in hands and feet, and all of these. Uh, uh, um, by measuring all of these, we, uh, we got significant results in uh, almost all the parameters. So we had uh, in the treatment nights we had uh, increase in their blood flow compared to their normal normal control time, normal control sleep, and then we have more drop in their core body temperature and shorter sleep time shorter sleep onset time, which means that they, uh, they fell asleep faster. And then in the morning, we also gave them questionnaires about their sleep quality, how uh, how was your sleep, if you want to compare these two nights, control night and the, 
the treatment diet and do you think this system can help you? And we also got significantly better uh, like uh, subjective sleep quality uh, which was measured by those questionnaires in the morning. So this is one aspect of the system. The other aspect is that um, which is also very important and we are we are actually more interested about that part which is not in this paper yet but this would be our next publication is about the blood pressure so there are uh, recently there are several studies large cohort studies that shows that uh, uh, that shows uh, the amount of dipping in uh, in the blood pressure in the nighttime is significantly associated with the future risk of uh, cardiovascular disease. So basically, if for example, uh, you normally we go to doctor's office, they measure our blood pressure during during the daytime, and uh, and they have like, some like cutoff. And if if our blood pressure is below that cutoff, they say you are fine. And if it is above that cutoff, they say you are hypertensive. But recent study shows that that's not really predictive of future risk of cardiovascular disease. The one that is predictive of future cardiovascular disease is the nighttime sleep uh, and sleep time blood pressure. And more importantly, the drop, uh, the drop during the nighttime. So this means the difference between the nighttime uh, sleep time blood pressure, uh, the difference between that and the, the daytime blood pressure. So which means that if we can uh, somehow drop the body temperature during the nighttime, a sleep time, which which can have a, a positive uh, health uh, health outcomes for us, which can lower the risk of future cardiovascular disease. Uh, and that's actually what happened uh, with this master system. And the reason is that uh, when the ABAs are open up. The majority of the blood flow goes to these AVAs, to these vessels, and these vessels are widely open. The, their diameter is like ten times open, uh, ten times uh, bigger than the diameter of a capillary. So when the diameter goes up, uh, that's a that's a formula uh, in fluid mechanics. The blood, uh, the the resistance through the blood flow goes down. So when the diameter is like ten times higher. The resistance through the blood flow is ten thousand times lower, and then there is less resistance through the blood flow, which means that lower blood pressure. So basically, what happens is we open up the AVAs, there would be less resistance through the blood flow, and the blood pressure drops. So that's also additional benefit of this mattress system, which helps us to have a lower blood pressure during the sleep time which is associated to lower risk of future cardiovascular disease. Uh, I think I covered most of the paper, so if you guys have questions, we can go through it. Yeah, thank you so much for uh, presenting this really interesting work um, that you did. Um, so uh, if um, people have questions, please flash your microphone and uh, we'll We'll answer questions from there, and um, yeah, I I would like to know. So, what's next? Like, how long will it take until we can get this <laughs> for for ourselves <laughs> to sleep better? So, that's actually <laughs> what we are trying to do. Uh, so, uh, before uh, before we publish this paper, and I mean, we have this. Uh, 
these results out. We talked to some of the big companies, the mattress companies, but you know they are not interested in changing what they have right now because they have a, they can sell what they have right now. They can easily sell their mattress, so they are not interested in like making these kind of changes in their system. But after, I mean, recently several companies contacted us if, and they are interested to do some kind of commercialize this. And so the IP for this system is like for the university right now. And they are negotiating with university to see if they can buy the license IP. And if they want to do, making the bed is not very difficult because it's not a, like it's not a rocket science. It's It's not that complicated to make it, I guess. If they get to some kind of agreement, they should be able to give it, a, make it, a, sell it in maybe less than a year or so. Yeah, that's interesting and promising. Um, it's really a, a very, you know, it's a very significant effect. Did you uh, compare maybe to other technologies out there, you know, like these different sound frequencies and so on, like what? Is, is this better and more effective than, you know, having these sound clouds on, you know, this white noise and, and things like that? Um, do, you, do you think that this is more significant or more helpful? Uh, <clears throat> we didn't directly compare with like other technologies, but so, uh one of the main things that everybody believes that improves this is melatonin. Uh, and when we look at the effect size of this compared to melatonin, the effect size of this improvement is higher than melatonin. And the, the point is that this is without taking any medication or any, I mean, it won't have any side effect or anything like that. So that's very important to like, we were able to make more, uh, more, Huger effect on sleep onset latency compared to like a medication. That's that's really a strong effect. That's really impressive, and I think it would be actually very helpful for children uh, with autism and other disorders that have melatonin deficiencies, and uh, like um, uh, you know due to that they have kind of lack of sleep a lot so do you maybe like consider working with um you know maybe a um, ch child psychiatry or so to um to test that if like um in autistic children this could also have a really great effect without them taking another drug yeah definitely i mean so research wise our next step would be to uh, at this point we just tested to uh, unlike healthy people so research wise our uh, next step would be to uh, test it on like different populations uh, either like uh, as you said psychiatric uh, uh, problems or also there are some kind of sleep problems that this can definitely help them because for example one of one of the major type of insomnia is from the circadian misalignment. So that's something that this one can easily control that and help that. So we need to also test that. So on people who have insomnia and people who wake up during the night and they feel hot, uh, if that also helped them. 
Um, I mean, they have seven different types of insomnia and all of this. We can test on each each one of these to see how is the effect on that. But we believe that it would have very significant effect on at least some some special types like the circadian uh, the circadian disorder one. That would definitely help. And in addition to that, this can also help, for example, people uh, who have problems with jet lag. So it can help you to to align your circadian body with the clock, uh, circadian clock with the the real clock, and like have less time of jet lag, uh, or like shift workers, or this kind of people who have special needs to uh, to change their sleep pattern or sleep on certain uh, different times than the normal people sleep. So these are all, I mean, all of us need to sleep. So everyone can uh, can benefit from it in different ways. But yeah, we need to test it on different populations. This is this is what we want to do research-wise as the next step. You know who could be like somebody that could buy it from you? the navy you know on these uh ships uh especially that have the airplanes <laughs> what's the name for it anyways they have i think five hours they can sleep and then they have to work like nine hours or exactly. ten hours and then sleep again five hours so for the military this would be maybe something that because if their sleep is better, then also they have less likelihood of developing PTSD and depression later on. Exactly, yeah. So, yeah. To talk to them. <laughs> yeah. To, to the to DARPA or something. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I mean, it's really everywhere. So, one of the places that we were talking a while ago was like Nassau. So, they also they were also interested in like some kind of, because they also have a circadian center. So they do lots of research on like sleep and the circadian rhythm of people uh, when they go to a space. So they were also some kind of interested in the technology. So, I mean, it's really everywhere. I mean, we all need a sleep and we all need it. <laughs> How about, I mean, do you have the, pro, do you have like a YouTube video of it? like? You know, maybe if you like make it like a video of people sleeping on it and what they say about it, you know, that'll 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 really spread. You know, like he's talking about it and is one thing, right? But like just having normal people like, okay, slept on it. What do you think? You know, um, and then kind of just describing their experience, um, that that would probably spread quite a bit. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, that's also something that can help. Yeah, I agree with that. Yeah. Well, let's, let's let's take it let's take it a little bit, um, you know, farther down the road. So, if you were gonna if you were gonna specify requirements for early deployments, whether you targeted the military or you targeted the civilian population, or whatever market you are gonna target, if you want to specify requirements, okay. For this particular market, we're we're going to specify these conditions and in these circumstances. What would that look like? What what is your best what is your best first pass at this? You know, harvesting this research into 
something that we can really apply. Uh, so it really depends on what we want to do it. So for example, uh, if someone has like uh, a circadian problem, that would be a different story compared to people who are normal sleeper. For the circadian, you cannot change it like in one night. You should, you should slowly bring it back to the normal. So, for example, they should start. Uh, if it's like five hours delayed, they should start with like four and a half hours, turn on the bed, go to bed, and then after like one week, make it four hours and bring it back by helping this bed to to their normal sleep time. But like if somebody is normal sleeper, they don't need that uh, to do something like that. That's one consideration. I mean, it needs. It depends on the specific needs of that category. What uh, whether they they are not they need to uh, sleep like normal, or do they need to sleep? And they are shift workers and they need to sleep on certain hours, or do we need to fix their circadian uh, misalignment? Uh, that's one point, and the other point is that uh, since it has effect on blood pressure. One thing we should also be careful is people who have, uh, who have uh, low blood pressure. So that's also one consideration that if for some people who have low blood pressure, that should be also a study that does it lower it more or maybe we should uh, recommend people not to, people with low blood pressure, maybe we should recommend them to not use this system or something like that. Uh, that's also one consideration that we need to study. Are you done, Serena? Yes. Yes. So, yes. thank you so much, Shab. That was a very fascinating work. And my question exactly that's a good time to ask him that, for example, some of the people that are struggling from the uh, REM sleep disorder or they have some problems like uh, uh, limb disorder. So, we know that they already experiencing the, I mean, low temperature during that time. Also, some other thing that I can think about is about withdrawal from the alcohol or come out, uh, some of the sedative that they are causing the low temperature. I was just wondering, that was a good point that you just mentioned. And do you have any further information or it's just up to the study in the future? No, we didn't test on this kind of population. So yeah, these are all, all the things that we should uh, do in the next steps to see what kind of consideration and what kind of limitation should we consider for this system. Also, maybe the portion of the, I mean, for example, for the REM sleep, we have, it just take it 20 to 25% of the sleep. It can be proportional of the, I mean, uh, sleep parts, for example, or not? Yeah, so basically, uh, we didn't report in this uh, study the, the, like the micro sleep structure, how much was in each sleep stage, but basically, they would have a, a higher deep sleep, uh, I mean, longer duration of deep sleep and longer duration of REM sleep when, uh, by using this system. And also there were previous studies that they did, like they lowered the body temperature 
they also found the same thing. So by lowering the body temperature, they were able to increase the duration of the deep sleep and REM sleep, which is a good thing. Yeah, thank you for um, those questions, um, Dr. Shah. And uh, it, please flash your microphone if you have questions. Um, Rahama, you joined the stage. Uh, Joyce, John, Ninka, Kyoko, Susie, do you have any questions? Not at this time, but I am incredibly grateful for the wealth of information being shared, and I would love to share later on. Um, if I do have anything to actively participate with. Thank you so much for allowing me to be on the stage. Yeah. Um, yeah. Thank you for being here. Mayor, go ahead. Yeah, you know, let me ask some, you know, you a nice room and thank you so much for, you know, all the detail, right? Um, maybe we could ask you some, like, I guess, basic questions. <laughs> First and foremost, based on your research, what can you tell us, maybe, doctor, that we can do at home uh, to improve our sleep based on what you learned, whether it's temperature adjustments or, you know, what are what are maybe the top one, two, three piece of advice you'd give us? Yeah, so basically, if I want to, uh, my recommendation temperature-wise is that the simplest thing that we can do is like taking a warm bath or shower before sleep time. And the important thing is that it shouldn't be so close to sleep because actually if, for example, exactly before we go to bed, we take a shower, warm shower that make our sleep worse. And and this, I mean, there are various studies that shows that. So the golden time was like one to two hours before sleep time, because when you are under the shower, your core body temperature goes up and this is opposite of what we want. So. And if you, you you take shower and you jump to the bed, your core body temperature would be high, and that that wouldn't help. So the very simplest thing that we can do is to like take the warm bath or shower like one to two hours before sleep. And then one other thing is that if we can uh, like uh, program our thermostat, program it in a way that our core body temperature is so lower it at the the beginning of the night so for example if you go to bed like at midnight set it on lower temperature uh for the midnight until like four o'clock five o'clock and then after that increase it a little bit so it's warm we would be we won't feel cold in the morning when we wake up and then at night when we go to bed it helps us to fall asleep the other thing is that uh, it's important to have warm hands and feet so if your feet are cold it's <clears throat> it might help to wear like a socks that can uh, that can warm up your feet a little bit so that can also improve your sleep these are the simple things and i mean with no cost but if you want to spend a little money there are also options so for example i myself use like the thermal pads i put one of them in my pillow to to apply this uh, thermal stimulation to my neck. So that's just a simple thermal pad I connected to like a timer and set it that to, to turn up after like 30 minutes. And if you want to spend more money, there are like, currently there are mattresses that they can control the temperature, but I mean, they are not dual zone and they don't have all these things, but you can also benefit from that. So for example, 
if we can warm up your mattress a little at the, when you go to bed while the room temperature is cool, that can help you fall asleep faster. Uh, so yeah, it depends on like what we want, how much we want to spend on this. But the easiest thing I believe that like take a warm bath or shower one to two hours before sleep, that really can help. Yeah, I'd, I'd probably just build something. Like a lot, of, a lot of people in this room would probably, uh, in, in, in this club, would, would literally build stuff, right? You know? Um, <laughs> so like, can you take, like, what? Okay, so tell me, if we were to, what's the specs? All I need to know is like, okay, um, so on the bed, like, here's what I want to make my bed do, right? Like, do I want to make the top warm or the bottom cold? Or like, like kind of give me an idea of... Um, yeah. Okay, so... Okay, so the, let's just start with the pillow. You can put a, a thermal pad in your pillow in a way that it's warm up your neck, not your, like, not the whole pillow. Because, uh, as I mentioned, there are, we have ABS in, the, in our ear and in the forehead. If you warm up that area, you actually would increase the core body temperature. So not that area, just, like, close to the neck area. If you can make your pillow in a way that can warm up that area, and the temperature we use, usually temperature like 39 degrees Celsius should be good, but I mean, you should adjust it, not burn in a way that doesn't burn you. So, so, third, wait, wait, so, you want, so neck area, you want 39 Celsius for, and for how long? Uh, so we tested in our study, we tested for 30 minutes, but we saw that after 15 minutes, the blood flow increased. So 15 to 30 minutes should be enough. All right, so basically set it to, uh, and you want that at the start of the sleep, right? Like right, right when you hit the right when you hit the pillow. Yes, yes, exactly. But again, right, the temperature so... you should test it, and when you are awake, to make sure it doesn't burn your neck, so, because it's different yeah. for people. Yeah, uh, yeah. So yeah, because it's, it's, so, so it's, yeah, it's something different, right? So you want warm, warm neck. All right, what about the rest of the body? Okay, so this is the highest temperature we use, and then we we need. Uh, warm hands and feet and cooler central so basically we need to evade that warm up a little bit of peripheral area where our hands and feet goes and the temperature we had was like 30 33 to 34 degrees celsius uh, that's basically for our hands and feet and then cool down the central area a little bit like 27 to 28 degrees celsius that would be the dual temperature part of the mattress. I mean, the controlling the mattress would be a little hard because you need to really make it. <laughs> it's not that easy. But making the pillow is kind of easy. You just need a thermal pad. But for the mattress, you need like a water to put like maybe tubes in it to control it, or maybe if you want to control it with air, it's a little difficult. Here's what I'm thinking you could do it with, okay? I think you may be able to do it with a glass bead system potentially, right? So if you have like, have you seen those, 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 uh, I love these, these like, um, uh, blankets, right? Where they're like filled with these little small glass beads and then you lay down and then it get it, it like forms this like barrier all around your body, right? Have you ever, have you ever tried those? Or anybody know what I'm talking about? I haven't. Okay, so um, if you look up like glass bead, um, 
blanket right? or heavy blanket, right? They're like really nice and, and, and heavy, right? So if you put basically, okay, let me rephrase. What if you use the blanket style to instead of the mattress, right? Because you could probably get more control on a blanket than you can on the mattress. And you're like tossing and turning, moving at night. You know, I know I move around a lot, right? Mm. Um, I literally have energy all day. And even in the bed, I'm like bouncing around in my bed. Um, so, you know, like I could see where if you have a blanket style thing, right? Where it's in the blanket. So it's all, and then a lot, you have a blanket and basically this, this glass bead structure thing that I'm talking about creates this nice, like, um, barrier all around you. I don't know how to describe it other than you can move around and you always have this nice, like you feel uh, cozy. Okay. Right. Mm-hmm. Maybe somebody mm-hmm. else explain knows what I'm talking about. Right. So just imagine you're laying down and you have a bunch of like, like a, 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 a blanket and then on your sides going down are the blanket. It's inside of it is, is filled with these glass, you know, bead things that are, mm-hmm. uh, next to you right well then you could charge them up or you could charge up different areas and um to be different temperatures so maybe so you could in essence you're you're charging up the the you're applying temperature control to the side of the legs right more, more than likely the you know most people might sleep on the you know what i mean like can you do it through a through something like that maybe make it because then then that's cheaper right like and then everybody already has a blanket I mean, already people have beds, right? And then if you do, if you took the blanket approach, okay, where you just, you know, put this thing blanket on top of you, and then you have this little, like you said, a little thermal pad in the pillow, and you just sell the pillow thing, then I think that might be like more um, feasible to, uh, mm-hmm. and then you can even like create a little prototype and just load up the blanket with some prototype and then put it out there and and, and start selling it, <laughs> and then if people buy it, you know, that's that's yeah. that's you know, the easiest way to get big companies to pay attention to stuff. And as an entrepreneur myself is, uh, yeah, we have, uh, it's, it's as simple as, uh, we sold a few of these units and then their friends, uh, bought and then they bought some for their family and, you know, and it's, it's starting to grow good stories. And they'd be like, yeah, all right, cool. This is also, you know, paired up with research. So that would mm-hmm. be, a you know, a potential approach, you know, because it's, it's difficult to, to make mattresses, right? Like mattresses are big and bulky, but it's not that hard if you approach it from some type of a insert, or even maybe like, uh, if you initially start off with, uh, um, uh, think of it like a, like a sleeping bag, right? I mean, even, especially sleeping bags, right? You could probably target the sleeping bag market to start with and, um, you know, <clears throat> have some more easier, an easier way to the market without having to create some big bulky mat, uh, mattress. You know what I mean? But you can still hit the mm-hmm. same results with, because uh, in essence, what you're doing is uh, the, the, the the product is temperature control at, at certain body points. Isn't that a good way to sum- summarize it? Yes, that's correct. Just one consideration you know? in, you, in this idea is that we should be careful to not isolate the body. So we should remember that we want to lower the body temperature. And we need to have some kind of heat transfer between the body and environment. So if, for example, we isolate our feet to warm it up, that are, there's no way that it can reject the heat to the environment. So actually, the purpose is to warm up the feet a little bit to open up the areas and do the heat transfer to the environment. So we shouldn't um, isolate that. We should apply the, we should like, Stimulate it with the thermal te- with the temperature, but we shouldn't isolate it. That's the- gotcha. And then, so what? And what? What should? What would you recommend? The uh, 
Oh yeah, what was the body? You said twenty-seven. So twenty-seven degrees Celsius is what you want the, you know. So your your hands and feet are thirty-two. Your neck area is like thirty-nine, and then the rest of rest of the body you want to be at twenty-seven. Is that the target? Yes. And then what about the temp, the ambient temperature, the temperature outside? What should the temperature be in the room? So the room temperature is usually, I mean, the recommendation is to set it like on 68 Fahrenheit, 67, 68 Fahrenheit, which, which is a good one. I mean, that's based on their studies. Yeah, 68 Fahrenheit. <laughs> yeah, I, I like, I, I actually like it, right? But like, I can tell you, man, like my, my friends or others that are elders, especially like foreigners, dude, they don't, they don't. Like they want to save money, right? So they'll sit there. Like, <laughs> a, lot of, a lot of families are like, like, I know with my dad's house, dude, it's like freaking, you know, like ninety nine degrees up in there, dude. I'm like, I, I'm, I'm being a little suspicious, yeah, but it exactly. is. He sets it at like eighty three, eighty four, and then like uh, the other thing foreigners do, I know specifically Middle Easterns, right? Is for whatever reason, since they're kids, that there's this sense of like you know, bundle them up with like multiple layers and go to sleep with multiple layers, right? So they get used to that stuff, <laughs> I, I, you know. It's like it's like yeah. anytime I'm at my dad's house, it's like you know, here's more stuff, and I'm like, dude, I don't, um, I don't say dude, but like, I'm like, like I, I just say okay, okay, and then I just sleep however I want to, right? But, <laughs> but <laughs> yeah. this, I learned that I'm just not gonna argue about this. Like I'd be like, science says 69 degrees, 68 degrees is what it should be at, right? And then of course it's like, yeah. no, they don't know what they're talking about, you know, right? Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> what are you talking about? You want me to freeze to death? What science I, says that's freeze to death? <laughs> I have to say, I have to say, Florida warm in here. I don't let it get below 75. Oh, see, so you don't, you don't like, like you don't want no sixty-nine business in your. Uh, no, that it going out of in here. Uh-huh. <laughs> so it's yeah, it's very funny in Germany where I grew up. People would put the bedrooms freezing, like they would never in the winter heat up the bedrooms. They would say it's bad for your sleep. But in Portugal, my great grandmother, she used to put so much clothes on me all the time. Like it was horrible. <laughs> <laughs> so extreme. <laughs> so yeah, I think it's it's really interesting. But I like Mayor's thinking because I agree. People that would probably need it, they wouldn't want to spend the money on it. I so let's say my grandmother in Portugal, she would never. <laughs> But if it was like, you know, a solution like this, maybe a pad with, with different, would it work maybe with water going through? And then you have the different regions, you know, like, um, Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. like the floor that you, you know, when you heat up um, the tiles and stuff in a house, like, could you make like different regions with different heated water? But that, would that be expensive? Maybe. Yeah, that's... uh... So actually, we tested two types of mattress. One was water-based, so we had tubes in the mattress, and then we had two different temperature, uh, two different uh, controlling system. One warming up, and the other one cooling down the water. And then the other type was air-based, so we blow the air from the cent- cold air from the central. So basically, we had a bunch of holes in the central area, and we were at the duct of uh, cold air under it. And then uh, we below the hot air to the peripheral area, so the water is mu- the, the water is much easier definitely <laughs> than the air. And 
it's much easier to control the the temperature for for the water but it's not that cheap i mean making with water is not that cheap do you know the electric uh, um not ovens um i'm sorry to heat up water and stuff the induction ones that i don't i never saw it here in the us but in europe we have mm. more electric than gas sometimes and then you have these induction ones so if it's actually some you know some sort of um, metal it heats it up very efficiently and very fast but if you as a person touch it it won't heat up your hand so you there's no risk like kids getting burned uh -huh. so, you know if they pull down the boiling water then yes but just touching and then it immediately cools down almost immediately uh -huh. but the problem is it's hard surface but that would be probably the best way to control really fast and very distinct regions with this induction system i don't know if you know of it um, okay so where so based on this discussion, Doctor, this is welcome to Clubhouse, by the way. This is the, your official uh, enter Clubhouse mode, right? Like now we're going to go into like social mode and like get a bunch of brains. We like to solve problems and have fun too, right? <laughs> so basically, <laughs> uh, basically what, I'm, what I'm seeing here is like, okay, dude, like the bed is probably not the best approach, right? Like at the end of the day, you want to control temperature a certain body parts and it's much easier to do that with some type of clothing right or some type of covering style system i think you know if it, yeah. it, you know to reach that effect plus if you do it that way like through a clothing style system right the, the applications will be beyond just uh sleep right like there's probably a whole lot of stuff you can you can, you mm -hmm. can tackle mm -hmm. with that so so like katarina remember like you had the nano dudes here earlier the, the guys that did the skin remember i think it was your room right the ones that did the skin thing from yep. the UT from UT Austin or something, right? You know, right? Yeah. yeah. So you get those guys to hook up with Doctor here, okay? And then they could like, and then they could go start designing some like suit thing, right? Or like some, you know, that that. Whoa, 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 whoa! Hang on. So we could we could do the bed as a base, you know, thermal mass, and you know it can always talk to to the blanket, right? If we if we're gonna yeah yeah, yeah, yeah there you go that's cool yeah that's if, really if, cool. if if we're gonna put together solutions here all right yeah I I'll, I'll I'll take it and run let's let's put together solutions so we got the thermal mass and we got the blanket and there's Bluetooth or something but um, you know how do you know how do we do the the sandwich layer regulation of the organism. Okay, this is where people in the audience need to come jump up on stage, like you know, like Ben and Io and Shane. Come on, guys, let's let's, let's have fun with this. Let's let's like invent <laughs> up here the new the new uh, 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 you know because we all like our sleep, man. And if we could kind of like figure out how to hack this up, like in some way where you could just kind of get some simple parts around us, right? Uh, I, I would I would do this. I, 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 I want to sleep better, man. I really want to sleep better. You know, like, it's very important. Better. <laughs> I saw. All right, so keep going, Serena. Uh, this is uh, Salim. Uh, just before we kind of uh, go uh, go on to into R and D mode, hardcore. Um, I was wondering, were were there any um, sort of uh, unexpected or additional benefits that you observed 
uh, from using the system aside from sleep? Uh, so the the one that I mentioned was the blood pressure, uh, which was uh, which have which we had the drop in the blood pressure, uh, uh, and also uh, the heart rate. So lower heart rate and lower uh, lower blood pressure, and the blood pressure one is really interesting because, as I mentioned, that's uh, significantly associated with risk of cardiovascular disease. Oh yeah, and those guys, by the way, they also had this blood pressure thing. It was like, like they could take blood pressure. Like this is so cool, Catherine. You could just mix a few of your people together, and they can invent products. You know that, right? <laughs> yeah, that would be amazing. Yeah. That's actually, to be honest, like that's in the background where you hope for doing something like that at some point. That we actually come up with solutions for people. You know. Um, science society <laughs> that's like the dream and yeah so yeah i see that someone mentioned like eight sleep in the in the chat that's actually the mattress i i myself use it but uh, the problem with that one is that that's a single temperature so you cannot uh, have different temperature in the peripheral and central and the main thing is that it's really expensive <laughs> so that's a major problem with that one. Yes, yeah, so I looked up the induction heat works in the way that um, it uses electromagnetic radiation to uh, create heat inside the cookware. So you have to have a cookware that is made out of metal, like magnetic pots and pans. And um, so it means that the cooktop stays cool, relatively cool, but then the hot pan cooks your food. And it's really fast to, like, it's really almost instant heat that you can create and then cool down, uh, depends more. So if you would induce this electromagnetic radiation and have tiny wires, metal wires um, that you could then program pretty well. Um, but you know, you don't need to cook it. <laughs> you don't want to cook something. <laughs> <laughs> well, 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 yeah, if, if you ever need, if you ever need, you know, steady heat, if there's, you know, a metal, and you apply an oscillating electromagnetic field and just send electrons going back and forth really fast you're going to heat that metal up real quick so you can generate all the heat if you're going to apply the power no problem so if you want to you know regulate heat you can embed that <laughs> no pun intended well pun intended okay you can embed that um, you know metallic element and apply it an oscillating current and heat that up whenever you need to, like an induction coil or an, you know, an induction heater. Um, just saying. Yeah, and couldn't we, couldn't we add then, you know, those um, uh, kind of uh, slimy materials that kind of heat up and cool down, you know, in the winter you can like, instantly um you i think an, a metal is in there and you kind of bend it and then it heats up your gloves and stuff like that 
So, and then the problem is you need to microwave it to get it back to, but you want fast cooling down again or like slow because it would be, you could heat it up also that way pretty fast, but then it cools down slowly and you probably want more control. So yeah, what would be the stuff you would put around the metal because you know, right on the metal, that would be dangerous. <laughs> so it has to be something that kind of transmit the exact mm -hmm. right amount. But yeah, it would be it would be really cool to um, to try the electromagnetic version because metal is cheap, right? I mean, it should be cheap to make like mm, yeah. So it's basically like a blanket with a bunch of metals inside of it that activates at different points to uh, uh, either heat up or cool down. Yeah, like the cool down, we would have to do differently, right? The, the, the... Yeah, there's, there's not really a symmetry with temperature. Cooling, I mean, in efficient ways, you know, let vapor go. But yeah, cooling is, is different than heating, no doubt. Could we do different like salt and salts? that you have in regions that you want it cooler there's like high density of specific salts that can cool down water or something and really cooling you gotta do heat exchange and so you know you've basically gotta fabricate some kind of heat exchanger you know <laughs> active air conditioning going on and, you know, that can be tricky, but um, Shahib, you know, if, you know, we can ask you, if, if you were to just, you know, if a whole bunch of funding showed up and a whole bunch of engineers flew in and they ask you, as engineers do, what are the requirements? <laughs> what would you say? What are the requirements for the optimal system as you as you best understand? So basically, we need to have control on the temperature uh, and we, we need to be able to keep it constant during the night, uh, at least for like maybe at least three to four hours for the, the starting uh, for the first few hours of sleep. So these two main, these two are the main requirement. I mean, in addition to like the safety stuff and all of those, but from the, if we want the, this concept to work, we, we need to have this temperature during the night. So, so far, Serena, to help you out maybe a little bit, what I gathered was like, okay, the hands, you want the hands at um, uh, 32 degrees 30. Celsius, you want the at 39 degrees uh, Celsius, right? You want the body at 27 degrees Celsius. So hands and feet, 32, right? Um, neck area, 39, and the rest of the body, 27. Like that's that's a suit, you know? Or like a blanket kind of stuff. You could probably pull that off with some type of blanket thing that you plug in and as long as you had some way of cooling down a certain area, you know? Um, if you're sensing, because I'm thinking it's got to be practical, right? Like, how, what, what's the most efficient way to achieve that result? That, that's the requirement at the end of the day. It's like, uh, oh, and and uh, basically controls. The, the other requirement is adding controls of time. So another thing I picked up in here, which was interesting, was 
uh, I'm gonna, I'm, I'm gonna try this strategy. I'm gonna try this strategy in my dad's house, right? I can't wait to do this in my dad's house. Okay, I'm gonna go to my dad's house. I'm gonna wait till he sleeps, and I'm gonna go change that thing to like 68, right? 69, and I'm gonna go like uh, before he wakes up. I'll change it back up to where it's like really hot, or whatever, like like you know, or like like where the temperature starts to go up, and see if he even senses it, right? Because it seems like there's a sensitivity. Another thing that's uh, uh, unique about you know. Uh, or for the system to work, it, it seems is uh, there's a variable uh, temperature depending on where you're at in the sleep cycle. So it's more of a you get started and then you want to do like a cool down process um, for d- during the night, and then you want to like do a, a warm up process so that they wake up warmer. So you want this cooling effect to take place uh, at, at nighttime, right? Uh, is yes. that is that correct, doctor? Yeah. Yes. Right, cool. yes. Yeah. So I was able to. Um... Can I just add uh, an expression to a comment I made in the comment section? Sure, go ahead. Yeah, please. So uh, I'm actually a really bad example of sleep because I'm in Denmark. It's 12 minutes past four in the morning. (laughs) Um, So great conversation. I'll be listening in for a while. And I don't know if any of you are familiar with um, uh, Dan uh, from Holland, who has made the Q-strip. And uh, what he doesn't talk about a lot is he's actually made a uh, cooling system that will react when you start sweating during the night. Uh, So everything you're thinking of that you wish, I think he just might have it. So if anyone wants to contact him, I said his uh, homepage in the comment section. Uh, Absolutely amazing what he does compared to what you talk about you want. Susie from Denmark over and out. All right. Thank you. Yeah, I I visit their website and contact them. Yeah, thank you. I I just want to point out that um, Dr. Um, Shab, uh he already published the paper on this. And, you know, it's like we are just thinking about cheap options that our uh, grandmothers and grandfathers that come from Portugal or Middle East would, would yes, <laughs> and that's actually exactly what uh, Dan has made. He's thinking the same way as you are thinking. I think. Okay, okay, okay. So I have a theory. Tell me if I'm correct here or not. Okay, people that come from places that are very cold typically like it cold at night and sleep, and then people that are coming from places that are really, really, really hot typically like it warmer predominantly probably due to the cost of air conditioning, right? Mm-hmm. Um, or, or heating, air conditioning or heating, right? So it, it's like there's a direct correlation, I think, between, you know, access to power or not, you know, or cost of power. So could it be that it is different in different populations around the world? Like how, at what temperatures? melatonin is being produced um the best like in your yes yeah yeah that's true because uh for example the asian has lower body temperature the body temperature is different for people i mean it's not based on electricity it's different it's not constant i mean we don't have like a standard body temperature for every population that's true yeah ah that's interesting Core, I'm sorry. Yeah, the core body temperature uh, decrease uh, decreases as uh, uh, the onset of the sleep, and continuously uh, drop 
uh, during the sleep span, and then it uh, uh, she rise uh, uh, at a uh, at a big, uh, uh, beginning of the weekly, and then rise, rise, rise. So I'm just wondering, um, is it which is the cause and effect? Is that the See, because see, because uh, uh, on the uh, uh, onset of sleep, we have a much more reduced activity, and then cause the core body temperature decrease. Uh, decrease, or is that because uh, we have a, a decreased uh, see temperature sensor? Uh, the the tem temperature setting cause us to sleep. Well, this is both ways. So, uh, so there's a model, the famous model for sleep, uh, Bowerly model. So basically, we have a circadian component and we have a, a, a sleep pressure. So when the we are on the correct circadian timing and we have enough sleep pressure, basically we fall asleep. So uh, this is actually both ways. We need the signal from these circadian rhythms so the body figure out that it's time to fall asleep. But on the other way also, when we fall asleep, uh, we have less activity and it would lower the like the body temperature. But we cannot say that's the only thing because so after, for example, after the middle of the sleep time, the body temperature started to increase, but we, are, we still don't have any activity. So again, the, the circadian rhythms, which one the, the most important one is the, the body temperature one. This sends a signal to the body that it's time to sleep. But on the other hand, when we sleep, it also affects the circadian rhythms, the, the body temperature and other things. So if we have a, a ideal uh, temperature regulating bed, mm -hmm. so uh, so if we have see uh, see um, at the time we want to sleep, then we just uh, set the um, see the see for example the bed would sense our um, intention to sleep, or we just tell the bed, hey well, I'm going to sleep. So the bed would lower the temperature, and then to help us lower the core uh, body temperature, and then so we've would that be possible that we force uh, uh, to sleep uh, see like a, a short time and also if we see during sleep time see uh, we just the bed would sense our sleeping and then so the bed will intentionally for example see uh, lower the temperature uh, and then so so that that we could keep uh, the Mm, we we could uh, keep the sleeping time longer than usual, even if we see like a temperature is trying to rise, mm -hmm. but uh, the bed is trying to see a decreased temperature, so that we could sleep longer. So, uh, uh, so uh, the model for sleep is like it has two components. One is the circadian rhythm, which is what you say, which is goes for example from the body temperature, the body tell the, 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 the temperature, tell the body it's time to sleep, it's time to wake. But the other component is the sleep pressure. That's the amount of, that's why, for example, 
after like 12 hours we feel sleepy after a duration that we don't sleep the sleep pressure increases so we need both these components to fall asleep and wake up so if we cannot just control i mean we cannot just control the the sleep wake with changing the temperature or controlling the circadian rhythm because that's not the only component we also need to control the sleep pressure and the sleep pressure is like by timing and by activities so for example if you you sleep after seven hours the sleep pressure is at the lowest level so that component would be out and even if you lower the temperature again you won't fall you you're, you won't you can't sleep much longer Okay, so speaking of pressure, by the way, like what? Just for you know, we don't have a sophisticated bed, right? But like, what would be what 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 kind of beds should we be getting? Like, what would you recommend? There's the foam, there's the spring, you know, there's soft, there's medium, whatever, hard. What would what would um, like based on your research? What's the best surface uh, pressure to be sleeping on? So that really depends on. I mean, for each person, it's different. That really depends on how how you prefer and the, the position that you sleep. So, uh, if you sleep on the sides, usually it's recommended to have softer sleep. If you sleep on back, a little harder uh, harder mattress. And uh, then on on the other side, it's always recommended to sleep on the side because when you sleep on the back, kind of the airway you your neck goes back and the airway would be blocked so that's not ideal so ideally you should sleep on the sides and if you sleep on the sides the softer mattress is better got it thanks so i'm curious i've you know had several addresses at several latitudes and you know sometimes i've been in very cold environments and you know, lately have been in warm environments and, um, you know, there's, there's all kinds of natural behaviors about temperature regulation, which are interesting in this context. Um, you know, in the Northern latitudes, you know, there's, you know, heavy blankets and hot water bottles sometimes. And, you know, in the Southern latitudes, you throw the blankets off and clothes are optional and all of that stuff. Um, it's, it's curious from an engineering point, what the optimal, you know, mattress, smart mattress, smart blanket dialogue would be, um, you know, I would imagine there'd be a necessary, you know, uh, ambient temperature component to any kind of smart algorithm that would you know, apply. Any comments? Uh, so, I mean, basically, you need to be able to have heat transfer to the environment. So, if it depends on, I mean, how you define your system. If you are just, you just have a mattress which you warm up and cool down the mattress, your body one side of your body is still in contact with the environment so you still need to control the environment temperature but if you are talking about like a, a suit that cover all over your body at that if that's the concept no i mean of, of course you don't need to control the 
the ambient temperature. But for the concept of the mattress, we still need to control the uh, the ambient temperature because we just uh, with the mattress we just open off the vessels to do the heat transfer with the environment, and we still need a cooler temperature in the environment than our core body temperature, so the heat transfer would be from the body to the environment. <coughs> Yeah, um, I think it's, yeah, it's really interesting that basically that the basics is that you need to control to get this specific temperatures in different regions of the body. And it depends on the environment if you have to cool down to achieve those temperatures or heat up. Mm, okay. Did you, yeah, so, so you would need to include basically, yeah, uh, a surrounding temperature adjustment, basically, like you, you would need to have the option of cooling down or, um, but which you have when you're, mm, yeah. that's really interesting. Um, yeah, I, I still think it's really interesting to look at, um, just from, you know, what I said before to look at just study uh, different um, regions around the world, how temperature is manipulating people, um, melatonin um, production. I think that would be a really interesting study, but it would be really hard to do, right? To go around the world and measure melatonin how the, and then check how people are sleeping. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> very involved but it would be interesting to 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 just you know out of curiosity i think i see mona um that joined the stage and i wanted to check in with you how, how much time you have if you have time for one, one more question or um no more questions a few more questions basically i'm i'm available okay great so He's, he's, he's officially in clubhouse mode. Like now we're just chilling. Yeah. <laughs> there you go. So feel free to give us feedback, but yeah, on, then. <laughs> wonderful. Um, yeah, Mona, did, did you want to ask a question? Um, yeah. Hi everyone. Hi Katrina. Um, so I was like reading uh, parts of the paper and it sounds really amazing um but i wanted to know is it self-adjusting so like during the night let's if you have maybe a fever you know sometimes it's recommended to have like a cool towel would the bed self-adjust the temperature um for that or um or like let's say a woman who's undergoing menopause um, they get hot flashes. Is it self-adjusting or does it um, stay constant over the night? So the, the bed that we tested, it didn't have feedback system that get the feedback and adjust the temperature. But that's something that actually we are interested to do, to like adjust the temperature, learn from. So that's something that we can do, actually learn from the pattern of sleep for a few nights and then adjust the temperature for each person. But for this one, the purpose was, I mean, this paper was a proof of concept and it was not the self-adjusted. 
Okay, yeah, sorry. I skimmed the paper. I didn't, uh, I just skimmed a little bit. But yeah, it sounds um, very promising for not just the general public, but like um, even elderly patients. It sounds very promising. Thank you. Yeah, thank you. Uh, Dipti, I think you unlike. Do, do you have a question? Or Leah joined the stage. Uh, Joe. Um, Oops, sorry, that was a mistake. But hi, everybody. Just listening. Oh, sure. Thanks for coming. Uh, Leah or um, Kiko, Joe, did, Brahma, did you have questions? Um, just to jump real quick, actually, what Susie was saying, I I asked uh, Dan, who we were talking about with the Q-strips, uh, the same question about, um, you know, hormone levels and how that affects. So that'll be interesting to see. But Katarina, it's lovely to be in a room with you. It's been a long time. Nice to see your face and hear your voice. <laughs> thank you. Yeah, thank you for coming. Yeah, I agree. It has been a while. So, yeah, thanks for hanging out here with us. Hi, Katarina. This is Leia. Can you hear me? Yeah, it's a little bit low, but I can hear you. Okay, I'll, I'll speak up. <laughs> so, thanks for having me. Um, love this conversation. So, I myself, I'm in a tropical country, and I have this thing where my hands heat up. So, at night, uh, night time. It's a nice time to cool down, right? Because in the tropics, we have a lot of sun, a lot of heat, and the temperature is naturally high. So at night, what we do, we, we use air conditioning. And I'm thinking, um, so does this mattress, this heating, would a cooling down thing also be a thing where, where it would be beneficial for me like I, I I would need something to cool down right <laughs> like everything here is about cooling down so air conditioning and the mattress I wouldn't want it to heat me up but rather like cool me down so I was just wondering about that thank you this is late sorry I couldn't hear very well so the question was that uh if this mattress can help with cooling down their body temperature? Yes, basically, yes. Yeah, yeah, I mean, that's the goal. So basically, we need a, a lower body temperature to fall asleep. And although we warm up the like the neck area, but the purpose is to cool down the whole body temperature. And the reason that we warm up those area is to open up the the vessels in the hands and feet, so the more blood flow goes to those areas, go to those areas, and that blood flow bring the heat from the core of our body to surface and reject it to the environment, and therefore the the body temperature goes down. So although we warm up some area, but the final output is lower body temperature, and we want to cool down the body. Awesome, thank you so much. So is there actually a function where the hands are being pulled down as well? Do I understand that correctly? No, no. So so basically we need warm hands and feet to fall asleep. So uh, 
and that's for two reasons. One reason is that the temperature difference between hands and feet with the central area of the body, that's one of the, the indicators for the start of sleep. So there are studies shows that even if you have like this, we don't change the core body temperature and we just warm up the hands and feet, uh, it helps us to fall asleep. This is one one way that warm hands and feet helps. The other way is that when we warm up, the, when the hands and feet are warm, it means that they are vaso the ABS in the hands and feet are vasodilated, and our body temperature is going down. So it means that it's helping to lower the body temperature. Therefore, we fall asleep faster. I mean, in general, uh, altogether, we need warm hands and feet to fall asleep. That's not a bad thing to have warm hands when you go to bed. That's what we need. Okay, that's interesting. So, so like the, the the warming of the hands could be like a function for falling asleep. Exactly. Yeah. Okay. Awesome. Thank you so much. Yeah. Sure. Yeah, I agree. I cannot fall asleep with cold feet. That's horrible. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's a funny follow-on in the warm climates that, um, you know, the limbs get used as, you know, sort of heat fins. And, you know, there's, it's a, it's a condition where the core temperature is generally too hot and you want to dissipate heat. And so the limbs go out, you know, either hands go out, you know, sometimes you kick off the comforter and, or you expose the feet and, you know, you generally want to radiate that heat. And so, you know, there's all kinds of mechanisms that will, you know, induce, you know, body configurational changes just for, you know, the sole purpose of thermal control. And, you know, some of it's conscious before you pass out. And if, you know, if you ever watch somebody who's passed out next to you, you see it happens in their sleep too. And, you know, sometimes all kinds of coordinated behavior, kickoff, blankets, you know, and so forth. Um, it's a curious thing if there's a mattress doing all that for you, whether it would really work or if you're up against habitual behavior or, you know, at what time do you, do you give the, the thermal temperatures to give the right signaling to avoid the you know drastic changes in body configuration which would complicate the thermal management in the device um, it's an interesting engineering problem definitely I, I think having to do all these movements would kind of interrupt the sleep and that could be a reason why melatonin levels would stay not in like the good range because having to like usually during sleep the body actively inhibits all kind of um you know modern neuron except like for you know involuntary uh, uh, motor system but um for voluntary ones it, it's actually actively inhibited and 
you know if you have to kind of actively use your body to like cool down and stuff to be comfortable that could might contribute to a lower melatonin level so the body still has kind of control um because with higher levels there should be more active inhibition and then it's kind of an early sign also of parkinson's and um, disease that you kind of don't have control over like you don't have this effective inhibition during sleep and you do this uncontrolled movements and stuff so that could be the mechanism why melatonin kind of stays uh, low if the regulation of temperature is not done by something else than your body. Actually, the, so one thing that I should also mention is that uh, melatonin, the body temperature doesn't control melatonin. Melatonin controls the body temperature. The, the body temperature. So basically, melatonin uh, controls the sleep in two paths. One is directly uh, sense signal for sleep. The other one is that uh, when we have melatonin in our blood, it also causes the vasodilation in the vessels and it causes the lower to lower the body temperature and help body to fall asleep. So melatonin can uh, can lead the body temperature, but it's not the other one, the other way. The changing in body temperature cannot increase the amount of melatonin. Yeah, yeah, I understand that. I was just thinking if you kind of to, for example, to cool down, you have to kind of um, put away your blanket while you sleep and things like that to regulate the temperature. Mm -hmm. um, to do that, usually your body doesn't want you to use your legs and arms and stuff. Okay. So probably melatonin level has to stay relatively low for you in order for you to be able to do that um, in healthy people. Because mm -hmm. um, if melatonin is high enough, you shouldn't, you know, you shouldn't be able during deep sleep to use your body basically just mm -mm. yeah that's right but that would be also interesting to measure <laughs> is there a way like how did you measure melatonin um is there a way to measure constantly melatonin is there maybe a sensor we could have in our watches like something uh, no it's it's not out there yet so basically for the like the sleep studies they do they wake up the subjects every couple hours that's how they measure well what's wrong with the apple watch there isn't like alcohol and glucose and so going to be measured through sensors in the future in the apple watch that would be something if there would be also a melatonin sensor. I don't know how easy it would be to build yeah. something. Mayor, <laughs> do you have an idea, maybe, or anyone? Well, you know, I'm so, I've been thinking a lot about like vibrations, man. You know, like with quantum, like the nose. It turns out the nose doesn't like smell stuff; it actually listens to stuff, right? So, like, um. Uh, 
I'm just curious to know, like, I think there could be a lot of breakthroughs whenever you start to detect the vibrations of things, right? And I don't know if, um, what is the vibrating patterns of cells in the body that, you know, I mean, well, I, you know, I don't know. You just had some AI run through, right? Maybe you could just sit there and, like, scan a body and every single, you know, vibration feature you could get out of it. And if you did all that with healthy bodies and unhealthy bodies, you probably run AI and get all types of patterns, you know, that come out of that. So I don't know. I've recently just been playing around with just at a high level, you know, I think detecting vibrations of molecules would be pretty cool, you know, to like get all types of interesting things to happen. I think actually I was working on some uh, similar or along the lines you're thinking for um, the pathogen detection research he was doing. Yeah, because that would be really interesting to for a lot of people to measure melatonin levels. I would assume that because, you know, also in depression, in all kinds of mental health disorders or neurodegenerative disorders, development disorders, usually melatonin levels are also affected. So that would be to have like a good monitor would be really important to a lot of people, I think. Ben, you d you joined the stage. Do you have an idea or comment that you wanted to add? Hi, yeah, thanks, Katarina. Yeah, I, I have a couple of uh, really basic questions I wanted to ask um, Shahab, maybe somebody else, uh, regarding melatonin. Um, so one is um, melatonin is useful for both uh, helping you fall asleep as well as after you've fallen asleep, uh, uh, it helps you maintain the sleep so that you don't uh, wake up in the middle of the night. Or if you do wake up to go to the bathroom, and it's easier for you to fall back to sleep when you come back from the bathroom break uh, in the middle of the night, if you take a melatonin beforehand. That's my uh, first question, if someone can just confirm that. And then I'll ask my uh, second question. Uh, so basically, melatonin is important for initiating a sleep. So uh, it's important to fall asleep, uh, and it almost has the the same pattern during the night. It has the same pattern as the body temperature. So it is like higher during the first half of the night, and then it starts to drop in the second half. That's when the body temperature also goes up. But the main role is to help you fall asleep initiating a sleep. Okay, got it. Um, so what about um, in terms of um, dependency? If I started taking melatonin every day for a few months and I stop, will I have any sort of a coffee withdrawal symptoms or any uh, sudden changes because I'm not taking a melatonin uh, for whatever reason, a lack of availability or I forgot? Is there any a memory effect uh, of melatonin? Um, that would be, uh, you know, very significant or not. If I, I can just pick it up, you know, after a couple of months, I can start taking melatonin again to help me fall asleep. Yeah, melatonin doesn't make habits. So no, there's no continuous effect. I mean, then you stop it, you stop it. It doesn't make habits of using it. That, that's great. So if I were to take melatonin versus say Ambien or something, uh, presumably melatonin does not make me drowsy during the daytime 
whereas some other uh, sleep uh, sleeping pills might uh, give me uh, that effect, you know, the next morning or something. Is that is that true? Uh, it depends. I mean, it depends on when you take. If you take it in the morning, it might. I mean, it makes you a little sleepy. That, but melatonin has the minimal side effects. I mean, that's that's almost the safest option. But and yeah, if you take it at night, usually you don't, you won't. Uh, it doesn't affect your uh, sleep time performance. It won't make you sleepy during the daytime. That's that's great. Um, I believe the commercially available ones are ten milligrams or five milligram. Does it matter if I take a lower dose or higher dose? No, ten. Is, so actually, actually, the ten is so high. So that's that's interesting that. Uh, they tested different doses and it seems like the three milligrams is the the optimal one so when you take it higher it actually doesn't help you and might have uh, opposite effects so actually don't go that high usually usually the three milligram is the optimal and if you want to use start using maybe I start with one and then go up to maybe three or so see what's what's the best for you I'm sorry, did you say two milligrams is the optimal? I, I didn't hear you. Three, sorry. three. Three, okay, got it, got it, thanks. Oh, okay. Um, hmm. And then the, you know, the over-counter ones would be fine, right? I think melatonin is not prescription-based. You it's can still get your Okay, all right. And I mean, and, most of them, when you, they say, for example, 10 milligrams on them, they are not really 10. I mean, they don't measure it that accurately. So most of them, when it's not exactly the amount that they mention on the label, so. Is this supposed to be instantaneous defect? Let's say if I'm insomniac, and then uh, as soon as I take uh, melatonin tonight, I would immediately get better sleep over the tomorrow, the day after tomorrow, or does it take a couple weeks, a few days to build up the effect before I can see the uh, impact of melatonin? No, melatonin doesn't have that the build up effect. So, so basically melatonin, you have is a circadian rhythm of melatonin. It is higher during the night and it is almost zero during the daytime. So when you take the melatonin uh, at night, the level of melatonin in your blood goes high. It helps the, the vessels to open up and then the, the body temperature drops and the message goes that you should fall asleep. So basically the effect should be immediately. The night that you use it, you should see the effect because the amount of melatonin goes up at that exact same night and the, all the afterward effects happens exactly the same night. Oh, you mentioned circadian rhythm. Uh, it's interesting. So if I'm traveling internationally, when you say nighttime or daytime, you mean uh, literally when I arrive in a new country, I would follow the, uh, the nighttime and the daytime uh, of that location, regardless whether uh, you know, my body, where I came from, has a different uh, uh, different system, a different rhythm of uh, night or evening, right? So if I'm arriving in the new country and it's in the evening, I can just take a melatonin, even though my brain is still sort of daytime, if you will, uh, coming from my old country. Uh, and yeah. melatonin would work as well in that circumstance, correct? So basically melatonin is one of the ways that people use for controlling the jet lag, but it's not like, uh, for example, here it's now, let's say it's to, you usually sleep at midnight and when you go to another country, it is at noon. If you take the melatonin at that time, I mean, you cannot, it cannot 
uh, change your circadian rhythm that quickly. So the best way is to move it as slowly. So for example, uh, start like to change, to switch it by three hours and then the next night, another three hours, give it like three, three to four nights and move it like two hours, three hours each night to, to make it like normal in the new country. You cannot, you cannot uh, like, change the circadian rhythm by 12 hours in just one night very quickly. It should be a step by step in a few nights. But in general, yes, melatonin is one of the, the methods for uh, to control the jet lag when you go to a new time zone. That's a very good point. Thank you so much. I think that's a very helpful. So melatonin is not a magic pill kind of like, you know, these sleeping pills that can just knock you out right away. No, no. But rather, no. it works slowly, gradually. Yeah, that's a very good point. Thanks, yeah. I appreciate it. Sure. A bit of a nerdy question. How does, uh, as far as exercise, because you were, you were telling us earlier that, like, you know, like, for example, you know, like, when you take melatonin, sorry, earlier you were saying, like, take a shower, like a hot shower uh, two hours before you sleep, right? Because so you want your core to, to cool down. What about exercise? Like, when is the ideal time to exercise so that you can fall asleep easier? So, for exercise, all the studies shows that when it is so close to sleep, it, it's not helpful because basically you are increasing your body temperature and the difference between the... So, when we say you take a hot shower like one to two hours before sleep, that's hot shower, but it it lowers your body temperature afterward. But uh, exercise is not like that. If you do the exercise like one to two hours before sleep, it increases your body temperature. But after that, it stays high. I mean, it doesn't lower lower. It doesn't help to lower the body temperature. So basically, it's better to do it at least a few hours before you go to bed. Because if you do it very close to bed, your body temperature goes up, and that's not what we want to fall asleep. We want lower body temperature. So in that regard, uh, Shahab, what about sunlight? So uh, if you're traveling to, if I'm traveling to an overseas country, uh, getting myself exposed to the sunlight, uh, that also helps. And does that work in conjunction with the melatonin? As in the sunlight is somewhat regulating my secretion, my brain secretion. Yes, melatonin? definitely. Yes, definitely. So, so the light both uh, has effect on the melatonin and body temperature. So. Uh, if uh, you get to the bright light or sunlight, it definitely can uh, can improve the, the adaptation of the circadian rhythm because it can both control the melatonin and the body temperature. Can I ask a, a question if you've done any research on this, even though I'm, I'm coming in late, about the effects of trauma and sleep, specifically people that have complex PTSD and even childhood trauma and how in some instances melatonin is not helpful, but in general, the correlation between trauma and really disruptive sleep. Uh, I personally don't have any experience in this one. So I don't know the answer. So if um, I can ask a question that goes back a little bit when we were talking about uh, spreading hands and feet. 
Um, I remember reading a study on the cerebrospinal fluid and the way that side sleepers versus um, people that sleep on their back and the way it's circulating. So I'm wondering if there are any differences between side sleepers and others in terms of, um, I feel as though a side sleeper would be conserving heat because you're kind of, uh, yeah, let's stack the top of yourself in a way. Uh, basically, I, uh, so your question is that uh, if the side slippers compared to back slippers yeah. have effect on like the body temperature or uh, yeah, and different? then if that impacts the sleep quality or I mean if they're moving differently or possibly because um, the side sleepers I understand it is um, turning all through the night and kind of uh, maintaining a balance between you know which side they're on. Uh, Actually, I personally haven't seen any study to compare this to one. I mean, studies compared like sitting position compared to lying down and definitely lying down improved the, the drop in body temperature. But I haven't seen any study that compared like sleeping on site compared to back and its effect on like the body temperature. I don't know that answer. <laughs> Sorry. Oh, that's a good thing. Hey, Shahab, um, is it true that over during aging, the production of melatonin gets reduced in humans? Uh, do you know if there's a plateau, uh, if there's a, a curve from age zero to age, I don't know, 80, so the average concentration of melatonin secreted by a person's average person's brain? And what is the sort of the, the decay curve? What does that look like? So yes, uh, the by aging the the amount of melatonin would decrease. And also the other change that affects sleep is that the difference between the, the drop in body temperature would be also lower. So that's also something that we need to fall, to fall asleep. It's not just the absolute body temperature, it is the amount of drop in body temperature. And this amount of drop in body temperature would be lower when for older people. And that's why usually they have more sleep problems. So both both melatonin and body temperature are affected by aging in a bad way for a sleep. Okay, I see. Uh, are, are, but are you saying that the amount of uh, melatonin impacts body temperature or something else impacts body temperature that it works in conjunction with a level of melatonin? So basically the body temperature is controlled by, two by at least two mechanisms. One is that the melatonin itself uh, open up the AVA so the body temperature drops. The other one is through the hypothalamus. That's and that's the one that we actually use to trick the body that thinks the body temperature is high and it starts the mechanism to lower it. So both of these mechanisms change the amount of the I mean control the body temperature. Uh, there is no study that says that the reason for like the the lower the lower difference between daytime and nighttime body temperature in older people is just because of the melatonin or also other mechanisms. I, there's not, I haven't, at least I haven't seen that kind of studies that see how much of that effect is because of the melatonin and how much is because of other, <clears throat> other parameters. Sure. Are there any uh, diet foods uh, or any other factors that would increase the concentration, the level of melatonin for adults? 
or is it just the natural secretion of the brain that there cannot be helped other than taking external ex exogenous melatonin? Uh, I don't know the answer to that one. I don't know if there are foods that can improve the, the amount of melatonin. I, I don't know that one. Sure, sure, no problem. By the way, as far as research goes, what is the currently the common popular system uh, that people are studying um, circadian rhythm um, uh, in terms of the emulate the melatonin changes that can help us to understand human sleep pattern? I remember in my days, it was uh, people looking at bioluminescence, uh, luciferous stuff in bacteria. Uh, what are, this is many, many years ago, but nowadays, what are the organisms that are being used in studying circadian rhythm? So basically, there's the, the field is now much different. I mean, the, the main focus is right now is on like, see the the effect of like the circadian rhythms on the, the future risk for like cardiovascular disease or dementia or this kind of things. The main focus of the field is nowadays in this kind of things. But still, uh, to a study like the sleep pattern, I mean, the gold standard always was the the deal mode, which is the the amount of the, the difference between melatonin the, at the nighttime and the daytime, and it has been since I guess at least more than fifty years, and that's still the same thing nowadays. Uh, there are not much difference in that aspect, but totally, I mean, in general, in the field of circadian rhythm, there's the focus is now more on like uh, controlling like the blood pressure by circadian and these kind of things. Not, it's not much more on like the molecular stuff or uh, it's more like epidemiological questions right now in the field of like the circadian rhythms and chronobiology. Oh, okay, yeah, great. Um, I thought of something else that's kind of related to this, but you know there are some people that can sleep four hours a day, every day for months on end, and they're fine. They can function really, really well. Others need really eight or even more. Uh, does that have anything to do with the level of melatonin or there's some other factors attributing to the different people can function differently with a different amount, uh, equally with a different amount of uh, hours of sleep? Uh, so one one major thing that uh, uh, for like the amount of the sleep time and the performance during the day is they are usually people uh, people who need to get more sleep is like they either have the sleep apnea so basically although they think that they slept the whole duration of the night but for the for the epochs of the apnea or hypopnea the, which happens when they cannot, they don't get the, they can't breathe for more than three seconds. On that epoch, there's like arousal in their EEG and they're kind of awake. They, it's kind of, it's like they get up, wake up and then they sleep again. So when they, in the morning, they think that they sleep like eight hours, but then you look at their sleep pattern, you see that they woke up several times and that's because of the apnea. That's one thing. The other one is the, the hypersomnia. That's not very common in people, but that's also one condition that you, you sleep like eight hours, but still you feel sleepy during the day. That's not very common. And usually the treatment for that is 
they give the this kind of the serotonin so they feel more more awake during the day uh so i mean what happens basically a standard sleep time the the best one is seven to eight hours uh, and then you sleep less than that even though if you, you might feel as uh, you can do some you have you can have some performance but it shows that after a few years it's with higher risk of cardiovascular disease or dementia so it's not recommended to sleep less than seven hours even though if you feel like rested in the morning and definitely for the longer when you when you sleep like nine ten hours and you still feel sleepy something happens during your sleep it's most likely some kind of sleep apnea or maybe it's hypersomnia or something like that right okay great so i guess i was thinking something kind of like a strange wild which is that if there are if we have learned enough about sleeping and melatonin such that we're able to either produce uh, the, uh, a, a drug like melatonin uh, or a particular sleep approach so that uh, many more people can function properly by, like you're mentioning, the quality of the sleep uh, by um, keeping, say, shorter amount of sleep, but higher quality so that uh, more people can enjoy shorter amount of sleep with equal effect than the seven or eight hours. And of course, they can have the extra hours during productive things, presumably. So do you think that kind of a philosophy, that kind of uh, thinking is possible uh, if we learn more about the process of sleeping and study more about things like melatonin? I believe so, but uh, again, at this point, what, the, what literature shows that people who sleep less than seven hours, even if, if they don't have any complaint about their sleep and even if they have good performance during the day, they are in higher risk of like hypertension and cardiovascular disease and dementia in future. So at this point, I mean, with our current knowledge, it's not recommended to sleep for shorter duration, even if you feel rested in the morning. But I mean, in future, if at some point we figure out, for example, <laughs> I don't know, the main parts are we just need like to have spend more time on deep sleep and REM sleep, and we have methods that can control uh, microstructure of sleep to just increase the, the duration of these two sleep and lower the light sleep so we, have, we get less for example light sleep more deep sleep more REM sleep and therefore the total duration of sleep would be less with the same performance and same future risk of diseases that's something that might happen in the future but with our current knowledge it's not recommended to try to lower the sleep duration even if you can Yeah, great. Have, That's uh, very encouraging. Thank you so much. Thank you. Yeah, sure. we had a guest speaker here on Clubhouse a while ago. Was months ago, I think maybe end of last year or yeah, sometime last year. Doctor Fu, I think she's at Berkeley or San Francisco University, and they found um, that a few people have genes that are kind of elite sleepers. That's how she uh, named it in the paper. Uh, that um, when you have these elite um, sleeping genes, those protect you from aging and Alzheimer's and dementia. So these are people that sleep extra well. And the research is still ongoing, like how exactly those genes 
do it and have very low kinds of all kinds of mental health disorders and and like aging they age slower and so so sleep is really important <laughs> yeah certainly i think I, I i wish there was a magic gene that we can just use crispr or something to <laughs> modify the gender populace the sleeping pattern but i'm inclined to agree with the uh, uh, shahab that uh you know, uh, the total number of hours is relatively, if I'm understanding you correctly, is still important. Even though yes. people with uh, three or four hours of sleep uh, claim they function really, really well during the daytime, still there may be hidden uh, dangers that may impact their cardiovascular system, et cetera, et cetera. So exactly. uh, I think, yeah, next time I see my friend, one of some of my friends are claiming they can go by with four hours every day for weeks on end with no problems. And if they say that to me again, I'll have more come back uh, to, to them <laughs> with what I learned from you today. Yeah, exactly. That's by the way, what was the genes that was discussed by uh, this other guest speaker, uh, Katarina? I wasn't in that room at the time. Any papers, yeah. any reference? Yeah. Any, did I'm you mention fine, one or two fine. genes or something? It was a huge paper. She's a really famous sleep scientist um let me find it she's a very um i'll find it and share it in the chat uh in a minute um uh, shahab is there like a good animal model that, uh, that people use now for studying sleep patterns and testing maybe uh, uh, drugs uh, or therapies that can emulate good human, close enough to human sleeping system, like a, a rabbit or mice or C. elegans or whatever. Any, any modeling that we can use? Most of the papers on animal studies was on rabbit, what I saw, but I'm not familiar with this field, I mean, with animal studies, but what I saw, in the literature, whatever I saw was on rabbits, but it's not like a scientific answer. It's just what I saw. I'm not familiar with the field. Oh, sure. Thanks. Did you say rabbit or is yes, it rabbit? rabbit. Oh, yes. Okay. Yes. Oh, not even, not even uh, monkeys or something? At least I haven't seen, but again, <laughs> don't count on what I say. Sure, sure, sure. Thanks. I found the article, um, but I so I shared the article, but I'll find the the real paper soon. But, um, B -B yeah. Oh, you have yeah. It was San Francisco, Doctor Fulap Fulap at the University of San Francisco. If you Google her, oh, there it is. So mice are also used to do this type of work, um, of course. There are mouse models now for everything where you have kind of uh, different. Yeah, this is her, her lab website. And um, yeah, you can check out her work. She, she has a, a lot of work about sleep. 
Um, I'm it, sorry, uh, Katrin, is that the cell paper or is that the economy, economic times article? Yeah, just at the lab website, to. her lab website there you can find all her public. Oh, oh, sorry, I got it. Yeah, Yin Hui Fu, Dr. Dr. Fu. Okay, yeah. got it. Oh, he's at UCSF? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, she was here a while. Um, let me check the date. You can maybe find in my profile the... Oh, like a replay, maybe? Was April, April 11. But I think I'm, I'm not sure if it was this year or last. Yeah, April 11. Yeah, she was here April 11. So um, you can find the replay. I can also share the replay. It was really interesting the talk she gave. Yeah, just from the title, it, there's a word dementia in it. So I was wondering whether something like a melatonin, which we're talking about today, whether that has some impact on dementia, on memory, uh, maybe sleep and memory, those two things are somewhat correlated or related in some ways. Oh, for sure. Yeah, that'd be great to get into. Maybe if you can, um, you know, doctor, if you can maybe talk to us a little bit about uh, sleep and dementia and like what the effects of skipping sleep. I, mean, I, I personally like to know this because I skipped a lot of sleep. You know, I was like, especially during the pandemic, it was, I'd be up like two days, three days at a time for pretty much two years. Um, so what's... <laughs> Just quickly to give background about like this room and, and the story is like this gene, apparently she, she studied people and there were people like that longevity wise were older in their years and still running marathons, but perhaps having five hours a night sleep. Um, it, 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 this gene seems to have um, like even something to do with their immune systems. So um, people, uh, sh I remember saying like people that weren't getting sick as often or frequently, um, yet we're still able to have um, a, like basically what a normal person would have in eight hours or seven to nine hours um, in, in, in approximately about like five hours of sleep or something is what I remember. And it be um, possibly perhaps due to this particular gene. Um, so I don't know if she was making that um, link right there in the room, but it, it is was a very uh, amazing room, and, and I'll be quiet now. Okay, yeah. So back to this uh, dementia and sleeping. I just know when I don't sleep well, the next day I I'm not really very sharp. You know, I can't really, I mean, I'm not sharp to begin with, but I, I just can't recall things that I would have otherwise, uh, I would be able to recall had I had a good night's sleep. So this is extremely anecdotal, obviously, but I was wondering maybe um, that there is some common underlying mechanism, mechanistic action, uh, action mechanisms that are similar between how we regulate sleep uh, with melatonin and how the memory cells work or, or function. That's a very simplistic, simplistic way of thinking about it, but uh, finding some correlation between those two phenomena would be very interesting. So, uh, as much as I'm aware, so there are st the studies that I'm aware of is that uh, the short sleep duration was uh, they were in higher risk of uh, Alzheimer's disease in future. The the people with sleep apnea have higher risk of Alzheimer's. 
And then the interesting one was that uh, the sleep pattern itself. So uh, basically there is the interdaily variability in the, your activities uh, or activity patterns. So basically it means that, I mean, they measure it by, by like actigraph and there's a, a parameter interdaily activity. And it, basically it means that if your sleep time changed a lot between each night. So for example, if one night you sleep at like 8 p.m., wake up at 6, and then the next night you sleep at midnight, the other night at 9. If you change, the, then there is much different when there's changes between nights in your sleep pattern, that's also significantly associated with uh, future risk of Alzheimer's diseases. So these are the three things that I have seen in the literature so far. But, uh, there might be other like other uh, other components of insomnia which are associated, but these three are definitely associated. And the interesting one for my, for me myself was the one that the interchange between the daily activity. Um, there's a paper I posted in the chat earlier, which might go to the mechanism, uh, and it was to do with the cerebrospinal fluid and the role that it plays in clearing debris and whatnot from the brain when sleeping. And one might suspect that the tangled towels and these kinds of things, if one doesn't undergo this um, process, you know, nightly, if you're skipping your sleep and everything, um, that they may accumulate and then have, you know, deleterious effects um, over the longer term. So plausible, I guess, um, mechanism there. Uh, I don't know that it's it just me or is um like I I can't hear anything. Is it was it just me or is my connection bad basically <laughs> or? No, no, we we can we can hear oh, okay. you. Yeah. yeah. I was thinking about that elite sleeper gene, and it almost sounds too good to be true because. You, if you imagine that it does all that it supposedly does, just from what I'm hearing on the surface, then you would think that gene would spread throughout the population. Um, I suppose unless maybe it was a new mutation or, or it has some downside, maybe like there's some epidemic disease that it makes you more susceptible to or something like that. Anyway, I'm, I'm done. Yeah, it's, so she, she's been doing this she also has TED talks and stuff and um so she, what she did in the latest paper was she took this short sleep mutations um like she took those versions of these genes and put them into mice that are mouse models for alzheimer's pathology and these genes um that you find in these families um they protected basically the animals from alzheimer's um disease for example so this was quite significant and then she uh published other papers showing um you know other beneficial effects um that microglia are involved in the protection of memories um that are being formed um, 
uh, during sleep deprivation and so on. Like, yeah, check out her lab website. There's also a TED talk on there and all the different studies. Um, it's, it's, she, yeah, it's really interesting. And she gave a really, really good talk, general talk about sleep, about her studies in general, not just that one paper that I invited her for. She, she gave a talk about the whole, her whole research that she's been doing, I don't know, 20 years longer. It's, uh, yeah, it's really amazing work. Yeah, and I wasn't, wasn't meaning to sound like I was doubting, doubting her work. It just seems like there's, there, there's some mystery about it still, huh? And, and like maybe it did arise more recently, or maybe it's really only very helpful when we're in a society where you get where we have to deal with diseases of aging or something like that. Yeah, that's what I wanted to say. Like back in time, who cares? <laughs> like if, if you make it over 50, like you had your kids, you're done. You know, like I don't think, you know, it was a big selective pressure to be a good ager, basically. I think that's very recent and only no, and also not for all the population around the world still. It's probably even bad, right? The longer we live, the more resources we spend, then it's probably not even that good for the planet. <laughs> I don't know. I mean, for our healthcare system and so on, it's probably good. But if you think of it, to have species live way longer than their productive um, age, you know, to be very cold-hearted right now. It's probably not a good idea, like a not good strategy, because you want those resources for like the next generation, the next generation, and the next. So it's probably even, you know, that the opposite, maybe even the opposite selective pressure somehow. You know, here's an interesting fact to that, right? 50% of the uh, healthcare spend is on the uh, last six months of life. Yeah. Yeah, so I, I was thinking uh, to cut around this question. I think it really depends. It's not a matter of just ex extending life uh, so that you're unproductive, but maybe once we know more about these things, uh, you can live longer and you can be more productive. For example, if you're healthy enough, uh, you sleep well and you're conscious, you don't have dementia, and you're 90 years old, you know, you can do a lot of good things. Yeah, I'm not arguing for letting people age badly. No, I was just saying for a selective pressure during evolution, where you didn't have endless resources, you didn't adapt basically the environment to your needs and everything. It was very limited food, um, depending on the time of the year and where you live around the world, you know, food was very limited. It's probably not the, uh, there was probably back in time, not the selective pressure necessarily in most places, not every place, but in most places to age, you know, that was not, and it's probably wasn't even realistic that you make it because you would die from like 
very basic bacterial infections quite slowly, but you would die from it eventually. So it wasn't, I don't think it was a factor. Well, I don't know. I, I mean, I have heard there's arguments about this topic and I think they even call it like the grandmother effect or something that, that really there was some benefit to having elderly people around to take care of the little ones and to, you know, carry down traditions and wisdom and, you know, remembering a bad season 50 years ago and where you found the game and, you know, all that kind of stuff. So I think, I think they call it the grandmother effect or something. Yeah. And I think, well, in my culture, that's definitely the case, uh, Joyce. Uh, we have a saying of uh, like an older person in the household is worth her body in, in gold or something. I, I'm just making this up, something like that. So definitely there was a sense of uh, respecting, not just respecting elderly because they're older, but rather, you know, it's utilitarian uh, because a lot of the experiences and life lessons that they gained during their years uh, work uh, being alive really had uh, contributed a lot to the to the uh, well-being of the whole household. And I think, I, I would just say this, I think with the way we're going towards metaverse or online world versus using our physical muscles uh, and the farming with the manual labor, I think that might, be, might be even more true going forward. Yeah, and I think the menopausal process itself is um, where the grandmother effect is pointing to because it's an odd thing to have evolved and also the gene i just want to point out that it's um typically we haven't been able to isolate a gene where there is a single function being served so they typically have a multi-variate you know effect um so it may be the case that there is some you know uh hidden downside to having this gene that uh doesn't have to do with sleep or is you know manifested in some other area Yeah, I'm definitely for healthy aging and, you know, having a great long life, like, for sure. Um, so I was just, you know, commenting on why maybe that gene is not too common. But um, it's, uh, I think environment is also very important, like lifestyle and things like that. I think if you have those genes, but you drink a lot and kind of do drugs and you know all <laughs> fast foods all day I don't think no matter what your genes are you will probably age pretty bad so <clears throat> I I don't think your genes can protect you from everything so lifestyle like I think is still one of the biggest uh, factors there You know, I just find it funny how everybody's like, like, I wonder, I wonder when our society will kind of shift and we go into like true quality of life over like um, extension of uh, life, right? Like me personally, I would much prefer to have like a vibrant, rich, risk-filled life, you know, and die young, honestly, right? Like I don't feel like, getting, like man, I, I think about being like 80 years old or something or 90 years old or... 70 years old even right like i'm like man that they're like every 70 year old i know is like there's like hurting you know <laughs> they got stuff that don't work you know it's uh 
seems like in the 60s you're right like you can kind of make it through the 60 you know 50, you know 40 50 60 and then like you know kind of at the end of your 60s uh things really start to kind of start to deteriorate you know is what, what yeah, I the, the, the one thing i would say is that uh, to that point i think uh we have uh uh you know Euthan not euthanasia, what do you call it? Uh, I guess it is euthanasia. In many countries, it's starting to be more acceptable for someone to decide to uh, you know, die uh, on their own terms, and like assistant uh, suicide, if you will. So I think that could be one answer to help people to decide you know, whether they think themselves as a lack of quality of life, uh, if they say terminal stage cancer, et cetera, et cetera. So I think those two things are, are actually going towards helping humans to live better life, more productive life, and more choice uh, with respect to how they want to lead their lives. Uh, you know, on the one hand, older people can be more productive, healthier, and contribute more to the society. Uh, on the other hand, you know, individuals who do want to have a freedom of choice of deciding how they want to live their lives or death are able to do so. There's a, a Dr. Peter Atia that some people follow his his newsletter and things, and and he has coined a, a, a term, the Centenarian Olympics, and he says he's training for them. He he used to be you know really heavy duty like triathlons and all that kind of stuff, but then he had a kind of a health crisis and he ended up. lifestyle and then deciding that he was going to train for the Centenarian Olympics and decide his view of it was that he'd he'd come up with a list of things that he wanted to be able to do when he was a hundred and like walk up the two flights of stairs carrying two bags of groceries or being able to sit on the floor and play with his grandchildren and, and so anyway he says he's training for that yeah, I, I literally just read an article about a couple of hours ago. Someone who was under 105 uh, ran 100 yards, 100 meters, and was disappointed because he, she couldn't make it under a minute. So she was hoping to do it when she was uh, when she's going to be 106 and run it uh, under one minute. I thought that's very exciting and very encouraging. And she looks on the paper on the picture as extremely in good shape. Obviously, she was able to run 100 meters in under a minute being 105 years old. So I think that's actually fabulous. Yeah, I was going to put put a plug in for, for um, you know, the, the new kind of data and, you know, all the monitors, Apple Watch, so on, you know, getting more data on ourselves so we can optimize better and theoretically get healthier uh, with lifestyle. Anyway, I'm done. Yeah, so if it's hopeful, um, my grandmother had just passed this year, but she was 95 and she could still recite poetry from when she was a child. She was sharp as a tack. I mean, she had a memory better than I do, I think. I can't recite poetry that I read last week. <laughs> okay, so by the way, guys, uh, you know, Dr. Uh, I'm going to try to say it anyway, right? Hagag, wait, Hagayag. Right, does it right? Yes. Okay. So Dr. Hagaya here has like, you know, I don't know, like twelve degrees or something. <laughs> I'm not kidding, he really does. He has advice. <laughs> what, what do you got with you got like a master? You got like what three masters or how many masters you got? Three. <laughs> three. 
pretty yeah so they, and they range in everything they got but and then you got a phd and like all this cool stuff right so we don't have to just talk about sleeping by the way the whole time right like sleep like what, what other topics interest you because you got you know you got people on here that are pretty uh you know widespread like we all like to talk about you know different science tech you know kind of future uh tech kind of thing so what what other uh areas are you studying or you're interested in or you just in general want, want, want to talk about with the group yeah, definitely. So I'm also interested. Uh, one of the things that I'm working is like using artificial intelligence for different uh, different stuff, but mostly focusing on like a sleep time measurement. So one thing that I'm currently working is to see if we measure, for example, the EEG during a sleep and by using artificial intelligence, can we predict future risk of depression and if someone has depression, can we figure out what kind of medication is best for the for that uh, for that patient by seeing different patterns in like the EEG, the EEG? So basically, it would be it, ideally it would be something that can guide uh, doctors when a, a depressed patient go to them, so they can do one night uh, EEG measurement and then. It gives the doctor some options that hey, this kind of this line of uh, treatment would work best for this patient. And this is something that I work. Basically, I like to use the sleep time measurements for predicting of future risk of diseases because generally the sleep time measurements are the most accurate. And when you do the measurements during the day, there are lots of other. Uh, aspects that affect that measurement. So for example, I don't know if, for example, you measure the blood pressure. When you go to doctor office, you don't know if that person came from a hot, uh, hot environment and outside, if the person ran to the office to, to be on time on the, on the appointment. Uh, lots of stuff. I mean, if he's nervous now, if he's not, uh, that all of this affect the the blood pressure measurement when you go to the doctor office but at the night everything is on the baseline i mean you don't have that that much of those effects that's the best kind of measurements you can do so basically i'm interested in uh, physiological measurement during sleep and also using using like artificial intelligence for predicting the future risk of diseases and you had said, uh, I forget, I, I, I wanted to ask this. I'm glad you brought this up. I think you were, you, what were you, what were you saying? Uh, I, I didn't catch all of it earlier about the, um, uh, the effects of temperature on blood pressure while sleeping. I thought, I, I remember you, you, you mentioned that. I just wasn't in an area I, I, that I caught all of it. Yes, definitely. So basically, as I mentioned, the, the method that the body control the body temperature, the main one is by vasodilating and vasoconstricting the AVAs. And when the AVAs are vasodilated, so their diameter can reach up to 10 times uh, higher than the diameter of capillaries. And by the law of phalloid mechanics, when the diameter is 10 times bigger, the resistance to the fellow is like 10,000 times less. And when you have less uh, resistance to the blood fellow, it means that your blood pressure goes down. And then we know that the nighttime, the sleep time blood pressure is associated with higher risk of future cardiovascular disease. So basically by opening up the AVAs, you can also control the blood pressure and lower the blood pressure.
So by basically cooling down the body, you're going to decrease the blood pressure, in essence. Uh, basically, by warming up the neck area and the, the hand area, that's how we open up the ABS. So, okay, okay. so you... when you open up the ABS, there are two effects. One is the blood pressure. The other one is that the body temperature goes down. So, wait, that's interesting. Okay, so you're 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 cooling the interior body function, but you want you okay. So neck, hands, neck, hands, and feet. You want you want warm body. Yes. You want cool, yes. and that's gonna that's what that's what that's the that's. And if you make the neck wait wait if you make the neck, hands, and feet warm your that will actually make the body cooler yes yes wow, so that's interesting yeah that's why it it looks a little otherwise i mean the other way because you expect when you warm up you should the body temperature goes up but it's the other way because when you warm up the neck the uh, it opens up the avs and when the avs are open the blood flow goes from the core to the surface of hands and feet and bring the heat from the core to the hands and feet and lose it to the environment. So the body temperature goes down. Just as you mentioned that when I say warming the hands and feet, still the temperature is lower than the core body temperature. Not It's, it's not like 40 degrees Celsius. It's like 33, 32 degrees Celsius. It's still lower than the core body temperature. So as I understand it, the men and women regulate differently such that the woman optimizes for a higher core temperature and um, will often have a colder limb temperature in, in waking states. And I'm curious if you uh, yeah, looked at that. Yeah, basically, yeah, the, the body temperature, the core body temperature for women and men are different. It's also different by, by the age, older versus younger and also by ethnicity like the for example asian by black people all of these affect the body temperature but the important thing is that we need a drop in body temperature so uh, whatever your body temperature is during the daytime we need a drop in that body temperature during the nighttime to fall asleep that's the that's why we do this i mean it really doesn't matter if you are male or female although the, the body temperature for male and female is different but the important part to fall asleep is you make that drop in the, the body temperature. And that also affects the nerve conduction, right? Because I had, um, you know, uh, I forget what you call it, but they had to send shocks down for demyelinating condition. And um, one of the times I had the test done, uh, they warmed my hands beforehand and suddenly I performed much better. Um, but it didn't actually mean that it was, you know, uh, a, that I was in a different clinical state and that probably goes to what you were remarking on about wanting to measure in the natural environment sorry i didn't get what kind of measurements what, uh, what measurements for the nerve think? conduction so um i can't remember now the name of the test where they put a needle in and they send a, a pulse down your arm and measure the, the actual speed of the you know uh transmission and mm -hmm. i know that that's temperature dependent as well so you can warm the hands and have a higher uh conduction than you would if they were cold like there's a relationship there i think between the um yeah the myelination the nerve conduction speed and the temperature yeah that's interesting i i don't know i i haven't uh, i haven't done research on that one but that's interesting thing that you mentioned 
Wait, so what, 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 what's the pressure? Okay, hold on. Okay, back to this, like, feet, hand, uh, warm up your feet and hands, okay, and neck. What's the yes. difference? You're saying, you're talking about, I know what you're saying about thermodynamics, right? Like, you know, uh, when, uh, when you were saying a 10,000, you know, variation in the thickness of the tube, right, in essence, what is, so no, what is not the... 10 times, not 10 times variation in the thickness of tube. So the diameter goes up 10 times. And then the, so if, uh, the flow. yeah, the diameter yeah, yeah. for the vessel for the ABS is 10 times larger than the capillaries. So when it the is dilated, there's less uh, resistance to the blood flow. So the pressure goes down. And how much, how much, like in your studies, like in your research, how, what's the variation? Like what percentage down? So basically our, uh, our subjects were healthy, so they, they were not hypertensive patients. That's one thing we should consider. But even in this kind of patients, we saw three to four milliliter of uh, HG drop in their map, which is mean arterial blood pressure. But again, these were normal, uh, normal healthy people. If the, they are hyper, I mean, there were not much room to improve their blood pressure. When you have hypertensive subjects, we expect to see more effect on those people. But even did, did this kind of people, this is not a small, this is not a small effect. Okay. So, but, but I mean, so, but is that, that seems like that's like kind of general, uh, knowledge, meaning you could tell anybody, Hey, if you got high blood pressure, it might be a good idea to put some, some socks on when you go to sleep and, and have your, your hands and your neck and your, uh, feet warm. Right. Yes, definitely. So, or for example, when when you feel like your blood pressure is high, something that uh, I mean, my mom has a high blood pressure. So when when she has high blood pressure, she take a warm bath, and that really helps her. After that, her blood pressure, she, she feels like that her blood pressure went down. So, yeah, there is definitely association between these two, between the body temp, between the controlling system of body temperature and blood pressure. So that's really interesting. Do you think there's so much more high blood pressure issues in developed countries, especially in the US, because we use ACs way too much? Maybe. <laughs> so that's also an interesting question because there's a problem right now with the definition of blood pressure. So right now, the way that we define people like if they are hypertensive or they are not is by the measurements which happens in the doctor's office. So you go to doctor's office, you don't know what was the situation before that. You don't know what time of the day. I mean, if you go, for example, 9 a.m., your blood pressure should be different compared to when you go at like 5 p.m. But we don't consider any of these. You go just to the doctor's office, they measure it. Uh, and there's a cutoff, I don't know, for example, say if it's less than this number, you are normal. If it's above that number, you are abnormal. And then uh, it turns out that this is not really a significant predictor of future cardiovascular. So this is not really important, this measurement. The important one is the one that happens in the night. And more important than the absolute value of that blood pressure, the amount of drop in the blood pressure in the night compared to the, to the data. That's the that's the important one. 
So basically, right now, the definition of blood pressure has problem. I mean, we don't consider any of these, and we just by one measurement in the doctor's office, we say, this is the, this is hypertensive, this is not hypertensive. But right now, I mean, right now that the, the findings of these large cohort studies comes out that shows that the, the nighttime sleep blood pressure is important, they started to thinking about changing the guidelines that the way that the, they define the hypertension. And that's why I say we don't really know how many people right now have problem with the hypertension because we don't have the correct measurements right now. The guideline is old. I mean, this is what happened like 50 years ago. We use the same guidelines for defining the blood pressure. But right now, we have ambulatory blood pressure. We can measure for like two days every two hours and then uh, calculate the amount of the dipping in the nighttime sleep. And then that's the main thing. That's the important one. But this is not in the guideline right now. Yeah, that's interesting. We'll have actually a guest speaker in the future presenting his work about using a E-tattoo for continuous blood pressure measurement. Um, yeah, University of Texas, I guess, yeah. Yeah, let me check the... Uh, August 29th. Um, but I think it's um, because they are from Europe. Oh, they are Europe, okay. Oh, wait, no. I know there's one oh, in the University of Texas. September 1st at 9 p.m., Dr. Curie. Um, I th maybe the date will still, ch like the hour, the time will still change because I think, so oh no, two of the guest speakers are, hi <laughs> Alexa, sorry. Um, yeah, the, the, the time could change, but um, yeah, it will be around September 1st, around that date. Yeah, there are, I mean, I don't know if this, you are talking about the same study that I'm talking about, there was a recent one published and they did the, the tattoo and like the the problem was their sample size was really small it was like eight people and it's still not that accurate i mean but that's a good first step i mean they should we should move in that way to do the tattoo sensors and these kind of things but what uh, the site that i'm talking is not something that you can use in population yet but it is a good start point but I think the best way right now, I mean, there are lots of watches that also claim that they measure the blood pressure continuously, but they are not accurate at all. I mean, they are accurate when you don't move at all. <laughs> they, they work well on a dead person. When they don't move at all, <laughs> then there's no artifact. But as, as soon as you have some kind of movement, the data is totally off. The most accurate one for now is like the traditional uh, ambulatory one, which measure like every, we can measure every two hours. That's the best one for now. But I mean, that has lots of problems because for example, during the sleep, if you wear it, it might wake you up because of the pressure it makes on you. So, but yeah, definitely this is some very interesting. If at some point we can get a continuous measure of blood pressure, that would make lots of Lots of ways for lots of researchers to see which one is important, and lots of people will figure out how's their situation regarding the blood pressure, and we won't need to rely on just one 
one-time measurements in the doctor's office of blood pressure. Well, well I'd like to uh, welcome to the stage Mary and Tomoko and Omar. Uh, I think, wait, wait, Tomoko, did you just unmic? And Jimmy Gumdrops is there too, uh, Joseph, so uh, Joshua. I think, Tomoko, you just unmic, yes. right? Yes. Uh, this in Japan, yeah, right, thank ahead. you. Uh, this in Japan, many elderly are actually uh, using the blood pressure uh, machine at home because um, it's really uh, well known, at least in Japan, that the, the blood pressures at the hospitals are much higher than at home because people are so much um, pressured or excited to see the white clothes by doctors and nurses. Yes. That's this, the symptom we usually say in Japan, at least. So the many elders are actually checking their blood pressures quite often at home, at normal situation in the morning or before they go back to sleep or wherever doctor order them to check it. So it's really important for many people to buy or lease or whatever, um, and do the blood pressure testing by themselves to keep the track record and show the doctor. That's something uh, people think about. I'm just speaking. Yeah, I mean, the problem that we are addressing is like the white coat, white coat symptoms that people get nervous when they go to doctors. And that's definitely one of the problems with the blood pressure measurements in the doctor's office. But that's not the only problem. I mean, in general, even, I mean, for example, so the studies that measure the blood pressure every 30 minutes for 48 hours, they found that the daytime blood pressure is not that, uh, is not that associated with the future risk of cardiovascular disease. The nighttime is important one. So basically, yes, that's one of the, I mean, definitely if you can measure it at home, at the same time every day, that's much better than measuring it at the doctor's office. But still, that's not that's not what we need. We need something that can measure during the night and the day, and then we compare these two and um, calculate the amount of the dipping between the daytime and nighttime, between the nighttime and day. So that's the important one. Yeah, I agree with you. And but at least better than nothing because you know having keep having the record of the changes might be better and the e tattoo seems to be quite a good solution because keep checking is really important like heartbeat thank you yeah definitely i mean if the e tattoos at some point if they works they are really the best options i mean but they are not ready to, they are not at that stage yet. I mean, the, the ones that I am aware of, they, for example, they can just measure for continuously for like five hours. Their accuracy is not that good. I mean, what I saw, the, it was like about four millimeter edge off. So that's, that's used for blood pressure. At this point, they are not still ready to use, but if at some point they can measure for like 48 hours with a good accuracy that's definitely the best option I mean, even e-tattoos or maybe the smart watches if they really can measure the blood pressures but at this point still the smart watches also cannot measure the blood pressure although they claim that they measure and although they report some numbers about the accuracy of their watches but all those numbers are when the subjects are are not moving 
as soon as you move, there are lots of artifacts in there, signals, and it is totally off. I mean, it's really useless. Speaking of, speaking, what's a good blood pressure monitor? Uh, is it anything you get from the CVS drugstores? Would that be sufficient? Those electronic ones, or is there any gold standard that we can use that's more accurately measuring our blood pressure? Yeah. So, so basically, the one that uh, you you put on your arm and it put pressure on your arm, those measure accurate. The numbers they give you are accurate. The watches that claim they measure the the blood pressure, they are using like the uh, by the, like the PPG lights, and those are not accurate. I mean, the number is not accurate for those. But the ones that they put pressure on on your arms, those are usually accurate. I mean, it, of course, it depends on the brand and this kind of things. But those are those are the golden standards right now. But for those, it's still they give you accurate number when you measure it. But the problem is that those numbers are not very important if you if you measure it one time during the day the important thing is that you should be able to measure it several times at night several times at during the day and then compare these two numbers that's the important one for to figure out your future risk of cardiovascular disease i mean at this point we are able to measure accurately measure the numbers accurately but since they put pressure on your arm you cannot hear People use it. I mean, some doctors prescribe it and use it for like 24 hours or 48 hours. But since it put pressure on your arm and this kind of things, it wake you up. And also the other problem is the price of these ambulatory ones. The, the ones that you can use it for like 48 hours, they are like at least $1,000. They are not cheap. But to answer your question, the one that you put on your arm, those are those give you an accurate number. But still, that number doesn't mean that much because that's not a good indication for future risk of cardiovascular disease. Right. So because of the problems you mentioned, uh, the pressure would wake you up. Are there people working on a surrogate approach to measure uh, blood pressure, maybe via some other parameters, whether it's pulse or something else? I don't know, are there anybody working on that to be able to measure multiple time points during the 24 hours uh, so that it's practical without having the patient or the person themselves being woken up? Yeah, so so one thing that uh, we are mentioned, uh, so Katrina mentioned is the tattoos, but they are not still at the stage that we can really use it in the population. They are at really early stages right now. The other one that lots of companies are working and lots of them are claiming that their system is work is like the smart watches. But again, those are not accurate. But there are still also some other methods. For example, they put one sensor uh, on your close to your heart and one sensor on your finger. And then the the time difference between the the pulse between these two, the one in the close to heart and the, the one in the finger, that's associated with like the blood pressure. That's one of the things that more accurate. I mean, in the researchers, usually people use this system. But this is also, I mean, this is expensive one and it's not that easy to use it. We should wear it correctly. I mean, ideally, in the ideal world, we should have something like the smartwatch. Right now, they measure heart rate. Hopefully, in future, they should be able to measure like the blood pressure. 
that's something that they are working on it right now, but we don't have it yet. I was going to make a comment that if you look up um, association between resting heart rate and all, all cause mortality, and also quite a lot of conditions, there are a lot of studies on that showing in several meta-analyses that resting heart rate is associated with all-cause mortality and it isn't just related to exercise. Um, I don't know what, how you, what you think about that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's true. That's also one other parameter, I mean, the, the heart rate. Also for that one, more than the, more than the resting, one of the studies that I have recently seen is that one also says that the dipping is more important than the absolute value at the rest. Uh, that one is also true, yeah. I mean, heart rate is also one other parameter that's associated, but I mean, heart rate and blood pressure are not, def I mean, there are two different stories basically. So, but yeah, that's also something else that, for example, if you can measure the heart rate continuously during 24 hours and look at the, the dropping amount, that's much better than the, if you just measure your heart rate one time at the doctor office. Okay, you mean the dropping amount? What do you mean by that? The, the... Uh, the sleep time compared to the daytime. So, so like say... The average of the sleep time compared okay, to the average of the not the sleep time. Okay, okay, but if it's um, the daytime, then it's only times when you're sitting or something like that because you wouldn't want to include, you know, moving too much, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, because I mean, at this, yeah. But for example, the ambulatory blood pressures that right now, the ones that they use for 48 hours measurement, which measure every two hours, that send you a notification like one minute before it starts and at that point it basically asks you to stop doing anything and physical activity so it would be more accurate but again all of these are are not really practical in large population and for everyday use i mean ideally we should have something that can continuously and accurately measure right now the movement make artifacts and all of these signals and that's the problem that's that's the big problem uh, do you think there's any way to be able to build somebody build the non-invasive system because i prefer not really even uh, watch because i have the very sensitive skin for instance mm. so the ones that I have seen, there are, I've seen the infrared ones that they, they claim that they, they, I mean, I have seen that they measure their heart rate, but I don't know how accurate they are. They say that it's pretty accurate, but I haven't seen their publication. I even asked them because there's one company that makes like the infrared, you put it on in your room and it measures your like, sleep time and your heart rate and this kind of stuff and I, it was like a couple months ago i saw them in a conference and i talked to them they always say that they have publications this many publications but i haven't seen anything really published from them 
I don't know how accurate it is, but that's also something, I mean, that's the non-invasive options, but I still need to validate. Yeah, I yeah. think I've seen some other ones too, like visual, using visual cues, even like looking at the heart rate with a camera aimed at your face. And I think there's like ultra wideband radar and there's, there's a number of different ones, but I don't know how far along they are that they're working on. There are also bands that you put under your mattress that can measure your sleep and heart rate, but still they are not that accurate, so. Well, thinking about nighttime, uh, the blood pressure is more important than thinking of having the non-invasive system. It seems to be slightly hard, but if we can kind of put some sensor in the mattress, it might be good. Oh, and then there was the talk that we had here. Katarina had somebody talking about e-tattoos, which, you know, gave all that sort of data. I'm not sure how, how far along that is either, but right. <laughs> yeah, definitely. I mean, yeah, I know that one, one lab that work on that is in the University of Texas at Austin. The other one is Texas A&M. The A&M one working on the blood pressure. The Austin one works on mostly like heart rate and uh, body temperature, but they are really at earlier stages now, not really accurate and they can't uh, measure for like long period of time. And the other thing is that they call it tattoo, but it should be connected to a battery also. So you, you still need to wear a battery, connect the tattoo to that battery. So that's also, I mean, it's not really non-invasive. You should still wear something. But the idea itself is very nice and it is very good, but it is not here yet. I mean, in future, I think that would be something really interesting. Yeah, I think ideally, you talked about using machine learning for, um, you know, different... For different approaches, um, and see, you know that that's really interesting to me. I had two, like one talk earlier, and then talking with a colleague of mine about how um, how we need to use that approach way more. Like a colleague of mine um, is um, is working in a child. Um, neurology um, and um, for epilepsy even it's really hard to know which drugs work on kids with epilepsy for example and most of the time it's also combined with autism and sometimes you know they even do the genetic analysis like the sequencing and it's still down to either this drug will help or make it way worse and your child will be in the hospital in the next few days. Like, I think, and then we, we had the room earlier talking about um, researchers studying to look more sequencing to predict, like, for example, miscarriage um, 
for women pregnancy miscarriages and to calculate the ratio using sequencing and machine learning. I think we, we need to do that in general more to, to, to prevent people from suffering from like drugs that won't help them, you know, like especially in psychiatry and, and other disorders that are not so easy to solve. People go through months and years of trial and error and it becomes very frustrating and, you know, you just, or even worse, like the disease progresses in time, which makes, could make it chronic. Maybe if we, if we would have a better way of predicting if a drug will work, um, we could maybe stop diseases from becoming chronic um, way better. I think that's that's a really interesting um, thing you said. And um, what do you think about um, you know using genomics, maybe the epigenome or proteome combined with machine learning and then combining it, which drugs maybe help or won't help. Do, do you think it's something we, it will take still a long, long time for us to develop these type of more precise diagnosis? So, uh, so basically one thing that I'm working is on depression. And as you said, for depression, usually it takes, I, what I, I read is like, at least about for average six months to figure out the right medication for patients. They have to change it several times. Uh, it's not, I mean, from the, the AI part, it's not that difficult. The problem is that there are not many data on this kind of thing. So, uh, and I mean, you need to have a data, a kind of data that you do, for example, you measure their EEG when they go to the doctor office and then people goes under different treatments and then you need a big data set. So you need several hundreds of patients, for example, to go under one kind of medication, several under other kind of medication. The problem is we don't have this kind this data sets. And if we want to get to make, I mean, we get our own data, it's, it's expensive a study and it needs a big funding. So that's the main problem. I mean, but if we, if we have the data, I mean, if we, if we have the data for patients, for example, they have, we have their EEG at the baseline and then we, we know the outcomes. We know they went under this medication and they got this outcome. At, if we, at the point that we have this data, it's, it's really not difficult to make it, I mean, to, to make the models and make the algorithms for that. The machine learning part is not difficult for this one. <laughs> the problem is that we don't have a good data that can, we can train our models. Yeah, I agree. We don't have the data. We don't collect it. And so, um, so do you think that the change in how uh, we have this electronic health records to have it better organized and collect in general more data from patients would help? But for that would be like a political thing to say, you know, collect more um data from people or data points and i'm not sure if people would also agree to to do that um on such a large scale 
Yeah, exactly. I mean, the problem with the health record is that we don't we don't have that we don't have a good measurement at baseline. I mean, we don't have any EEG measurement or any any continuous, for example, heart rate variability measurement. We don't have any kind of measurement. We can at most we can figure out what kind of medications they went through, and I mean, and we assume that the last one worked best for them. So. That's that's what we can get out of that, but we don't have the baseline measurements for that. In the newer studies, some of the studies, like the All of Us, for example, a study, they are using variable data. But uh, for example, in this study, they use Fitbit, but they don't release the raw data, and Fitbit doesn't give them Fitbit don't give them the raw data. They just, for example, give you the heart rate the heart rate every five minutes and the number of steps. These are good, but this, these are not enough. But they have, Fitbit has the raw data, and when we have the raw data, it means that we have the heart rate variability. We can get lots of data out of the heart rate variability. And then you have like the future health outcomes and the health record and everything. But they didn't consider this in, when they designed their study that to have access to the raw data. So that's useless for us again. Yeah, again, the, the problem is the, the data. <laughs> yeah, well, uh, as Katrina mentioned, the, the collection data can be very political. And one of the reasons why uh, Google Health failed was just because of the data, the data itself wasn't really accurate or uh, not really a baseline is different from one person to the other or one hospital to another. That's why they failed to to really, even they got the fee, uh, data fee, they couldn't really use, utilize the data to um, to analyze the, the situation. And also it's really political. And also the thing is, uh, who owns the data is one issue. The other is the data privacy and, and um, in Japan, the government is collecting all uh, healthcare data uh, because, the, because of the Japanese healthcare system. But those data can be only used for research purpose. So unless the government changed the policies saying that this is also real life data, real world data, so that, that this can be used to utilize for better health but because of this really uh, political thing, that's why the government don't want to talk about it. So it's really a mixture of so many different issues which we have to solve one by one. Yeah, exactly. The, all of this are right. I mean, right now we buy the, the variables, but when we want to get data, they, we don't have access to our own raw data. That's, that's one thing, I mean, it, it's not clear whose data is this. I mean, does, can the company really prevent you from getting your own raw data? It seems like they are what they are doing right now. But I mean, that's something that should be solved also. And yeah, there is also the problem with privacy and who, who get access to this data. All of these are problems, but I mean, one thing is that these are private companies and they try to give as minimum amount of data as possible. Maybe, I believe that for two reasons, maybe one is 
when you have the raw data, the accuracy might go under question in compared to, for example, if they give you just a, a heart rate for every five minutes compared to when they want to give you uh, like every second several of uh, measurements of heart rate every second. I mean, definitely the, the second one has less accuracy. So that would be something that might, maybe that's one reason. And the other reason is maybe they they try to sell the the data to yourself. For example, some of them, some of the variables when you want to, they give you the average data, but when you want to have access to your own raw data, you should pay pay them to get access to that. So that's also a source that they can make money. I mean, these are all the problems with this. These are new things and people are still trying to figure out the rules for it and the regulations for it. And there are lots of companies and yeah, it's complicated. Yeah, I agree that, you know, the data problem will have to solve somehow in the future. Now that you started to attempt that the data that they collect in the EU that it has to go into like a repository. And I don't know if they got through with that, with that regulation or not. And that also other small companies, uh, they have to allow access to those data sets. So it's more fair because if we don't give access to all this data, there will be monopolies, you know, and further and further more and more monopolies because they hold all the data so then they can make future uh, products for us um, more easily and others won't be able to compete because they have zero data. So I think yeah. they wanted to attempt that, but um, um, yeah, I'm not, I'm not sure if they got you know, it's always attempts, but then we are not sure if it's actually really working in reality. But I agree that that would be important and that we can also decide who we want to benefit the data with. Um, because it's not like we get the Apple Watch for free, right? <laughs> with like our heart rate and how much we move and things like that. We have to buy them. So the data should be hours like it's different if you use google or facebook it's free so you kind of know you know it's a free service it's not for free they collect your data and that's why it's free but we buy an iphone and an apple watch and a fitbit so the data should belong to us and i think it would be relatively easy to regulate they should just put it under hipaa regulations because and under the same regulations like health data in general from hospitals because you always has as a, have as a patient the right to access your raw data so your health records from that hospital so if they would just put all those data sets under the same regulations that in general they have data sets personal data sets have to follow those regulations I don't see how it would be so hard. I mean, sure, there are probably a lot of lobbyists going against that, but like from a practical sense, it shouldn't be that hard to change the rules like that. 
um and it's i for, correct me if i'm wrong but heart rate variability gives you a lot of insight into all sorts of disease, diseases and even susceptibility towards future diseases so i think uh, part of the entire um conspiracy here is that um, the the companies that are taking your heart rate variability data are probably going to be selling it to uh, pharmaceutical companies and um advertisers so that they can target you with specific drugs like if they know you have a risk of heart disease they will send you heart disease related advertisements and it's part of the problem of the you know unfair big tech advantages especially if apple and google have their own advertising marketplaces so they they are incentivized to send you like these kinds of targeted ads right and and um i i, I might be wrong about it being um, a sort of universal um measure of all your uh, um disease uh, uh, sort of likelihoods but uh, that's what i've heard yeah actually there was a case uh, in chicago i think facebook has a marketing app that somehow was accessing the information that the hospital was collecting from its patients i don't remember the name of the of the actual app but it was something uh maybe pixel I think that was the name of it. So certainly, the uh, private uh, data privacy is a very important issue. I think it's even it's even more and more important because data has become more and more valuable, and a lot of the information uh, treatment regime, diagnostic uh, uh, um, approaches actually uh, would be dependent upon the quality of the data. Uh, but on the other hand, uh, the thought that you know patients should own the raw data it sounds reasonable and logical. Uh, the only problem is that at least one of the problems is that the data that's actually useful is actually somewhat curated. In other words, it's not just a, a, a number of your know, LDL or it's um, uh, you know a blood pressure of uh, 120 over 80, but rather it's the reference point and what the data, what the actual numbers mean, and that comes from uh, the additional processing of the raw data, if you will, uh, which is the curation of what it means finally. And that's the uh, the curated data actually is going to be the one that's going to be useful to uh, be uh, incorporated into a treatment regime or diagnostic pro uh, methods. So there there needs to be somewhat of a I think a two way a, a two two way street, as in consumers slash patients will need to be mindful that um, there's no absolute in terms of ownership of data. Uh, the consumer and patients will need to really relinquish uh, some. Um, uh, I was going to say ownership of some manipulation of the, the data that they utilized, that the doctors and hospitals extracted from their own uh, biological uh, system, whether it's blood or it's urine or something. Uh, but in exchange, uh, patients should get the curation, the curated form of the data back and be able to actually leverage that data for uh, his or her own treatment. Uh, in consultation with his or her own primary care physicians or specialists. Um, the one other aspect to consider would be there may be some creative collaboration between industry and which is the curator or processing of the data uh, with the uh, generator of the, of the data, which is the patients, uh, whether it's via some sort of a DAO organization or some sort of a creative licensing uh, or sharing, profit sharing, uh, you know, there are legal instruments that could be applied or deployed to move the dial uh, forward, if you will. I think, uh, you know, I guess my central point is uh, instead of having a stalemate of arguing against each other, 
as in, you know, my data, my ownership, don't do anything with it. And the hospitals or how the, and the pharma companies go, well, you know, if I don't have access to your data, I'm not going to be able to help you. Uh, rather than that uh, status, let's move forward with a sort of a collaborative approach uh, for a more positive uh, outcome for, for all sides, if you will. Yeah, agree. And I think the, the issue here is probably the um, transparency and trust. And if we trust the, the, uh, the agencies which we are giving up our privacy, then we don't mind use them using our pri uh, private data. And because it's a transparent, that's why we feel confident to trust them. So that's one of the, the solutions uh, to solve the, the conspiracies. And also probably um, this the collection data point of view, uh, some people start discussing about the digital IDs and um, in there we can um, the, the uh, we can accumulate the data and as we mentioned the the number is just a number without analyzing or utilizing it just doesn't mean anything to individual people because my blood pressure doesn't mean to anybody. And also, unless we analyze what's the difference between the good time and bad time or being in the, the, um, the ill and so on, it doesn't mean anything. So it's really need to think about what's the importance of the data and how it is utilized as well as the transparency and trust. You know, Tomoko, to your point, uh, I remember when I was uh, uh, in, working in the personalized medicine field, uh, uh, leveraging the, uh, you know, genomic sequencing to discover biomarkers on uh, correlation, uh, certain marker to a disease, whether it's cardiovascular or rheumatoid arthritis or, uh, you know, whatever. I think the concern then was that uh, privacy, but it's really not just privacy, but rather it's how it's used. So you mentioned the, uh, the scenario where, you know, my blood pressure, you know, it's my private information. I don't want other people to know about it. But in fact, the, if you look uh, deeper, it's actually the concern was that the insurance company may use the biomarking information against me, as in, you know, if there's a correlation uh, between my, the marker in my body and the risk of cardiovascular disease, while the insurance company might actually charge me high premium. So I think, again, this, is, uh, this, is, uh, the, this was the early days of personalized medicine in diagnostics. Um, I think over time, there are two ways uh, that, that we have been able to resolving, resolve this issue. One is that, you know, there are like regulations uh, that Congress legislated in terms of uh, prohibiting the usage of certain information by the insurance company, by healthcare workers against, um, you know, the, the patients. And the other thing is that over time, uh, we, the, the general public and the patients have accepted more that part of the uh, giving up the so-called privacy uh, is really uh, for generating more personalized uh, targeted treatment uh, or diagnostic for that particular patient. So it's, it's really a, a process of education. Uh, and uh, the other factor that's relevant to this is uh, economic uh, uh, reality, if you will. I think uh, in different, if you look at a, if we look at a global perspective, you know, there are countries with higher GDP average per capita, and there are lower ones that are with lower. 
So in, in terms of uh, there are different priorities for different populations, all the way from survival, being have enough to eat, uh, to all the way to I, I would prefer um, you know, certain things, even though they're not necessary to my survival. So I think the concept of privacy, I believe, is also evolving. Uh, there are things that we were not willing to give up uh, in the olden days, but now we are able to, to, uh, to uh, be willing to do that uh, in exchange for a better treatment or better quality of uh, a lifestyle, if you will. So I, I think I'm still hopeful that uh, just uh, analogous to the banking industry, where uh, in the olden days, we, don't, we didn't really want to go online banking for the fear that we would compromise and sacrifice our accounts would be hacked. Uh, so we would still prefer in-person banking at the window with a teller. Now, fast forward uh, 10, 20 years, I think online banking is almost inevitable. Most people, uh, really, at least in the US, uh, are used to uh, accepting the fact that, hey, yeah, the risk is there, uh, hacking is there, but whatever, that's for the, for the convenience and the reality, uh, we're gonna have to go use online banking. So maybe in healthcare, uh, the concept of privacy and the, uh, the sort of data usage would also evolve similarly to uh, a more sort of uh, a practical and bene mutually beneficial uh, point. And I think an interesting uh, economic factor as well, like Katrina mentioned, she's not willing to pay for that heart rate variability data. There's an economic driver, which is that the insurance company and the advertisers are willing to pay for that data more than the actual owners of the data or the tenants of the data. Like. I mean, uh, the average U.S. consumer is subjected to a thousand dollars worth of advertising uh, every every year, right? Uh, so, I mean, are we willing to pay a thousand dollars for a heart rate variability data? No, but the advertisers and the insurance companies are. So that's always going to be driving this in a way. Yeah, the thing is, why and you know that kind of came from the guest speaker we had earlier today about the genetic sequencing and predicting miscarriage, um, you know, risk, uh, but, you know, also then looking at other data sets, like with the same data, you could probably predict um, cancer, like how likely a woman is to get cancer because there are genes that overlap. Like we don't know, but most likely we could but what can we do about it? And we can predict a lot of things, but if there's no solution for it, like one thing is if we have a solution for it, you know, we would predict this, we would have the perfect medication or the perfect lifestyle you could have to address it. But for a lot of things, we don't have any cure or any solution. So do what does it help you to know all this data? You know, like what does it help you to know that maybe your kids will have autism? Like, would you really consider like that's then a moral issue, and then you will have all these arguments about religious people against other people? What what do you do with that information? Or what do you do with the information that you're more likely to get um, Alzheimer's or dementia? Do we have a good drug that you could take all your life right now to prevent it? Okay, you can sleep, but that's common sense, right? That we know 
everyone should sleep enough, eat healthy, exercise a little bit. You know, we know all the healthy lifestyles by now. So what do you do? Why would you do that to yourself to know at, let's say, 55, you have a higher likelihood of dementia setting in? Like, don't you want to live just your life until then? Like, that's one thing that concerns me about knowing too much. And what do you do with that information? What will yeah, that's a fa- with that if there's no solution? Yeah, that's a fascinating question, uh, Katerina. That was actually the question that was in discussion, uh, again, the, during the early days of personalized medicine uh, when uh, we were working on embryo markers. You know, the way that I would address that uh, would be uh, a couple of ways to address that. One would be, it depends on you, how you design the, uh, the primary endpoint, if you will. You know, personalized medicine can be utilized in different ways, not only to tell you, hey, you have a higher likelihood of developing Alzheimer's or cardiovascular disease, but it could also be used to stratify patient population. So there, there were, uh, we were working with pharma companies uh, with their failed trials, if you will. The failed in the sense that you know, it was uh, applied to the general population and this is, uh, there was no p- good p-value. So we were able to stratify the general population in the case of control uh, approach and then discover a subset of that population uh, with a particular marker actually was responding to the drug that it was tested. It was what they, they were testing. So I think uh, you know that particular approach really has almost immediate utility uh, in terms of having the information about you, uh, as in you have this green marker. Therefore, we should put you in this on this drug. Whereas if you have a red marker, that would not be a very practical way, useful way to do that. And the other approach, the other way to understand the utility of the uh, uh, marker to personalized medicine is. Uh, there may be technology that's soon to be developed that can be utilized to help and uh, to be used as a therapy. You know, for example, in the case of, uh, I'm thinking of an example of a sickle cell anemia, you know, that's going to help, it's going to help me knowing that I have sickle cell anemia, I've got a gene mutation, but nothing is going to be done about it. You know, you cannot change anything about it. I just live with this thought that, gosh, I have sickle cell anemia. But then again, fast forward a few years later, uh, you know, CRISPR came along. So technologies like that, combined with the information of the diagnostic, the uh, marker that we discovered early on, could actually be combined to help me find a therapeutic way to change, to improve my health, if you will, if I have carried that particular gene. So I think, you know, the I believe the utility of uh, discovering uh, these markers uh, or diagnostic tools would be fundamentally useful as a technology. I think the question is how to use it, or to more put it more simply, uh, to prevent the uh, misuse or the unproductive use of that information once we have it. And the case, the examples that I can think of would be inclu- including the insurance uh, leveraging the information in their calculating actuarial table, which, by the way, there's no good science to to prove that anyways, to use that factor. It's not like smoking or anything like that. But anyway, that's a different topic. But um, I think, uh, you know, we have uh, regulations and law as a tool to prevent that from happening. And then again, once you sort of reduce the likelihood of a negative application usage of the information, I think, uh, you know, what what's left in my mind would be potential promising positive 
application of that information to help improve our lives. Yeah, Ben, I, I really like that. And in general, I agree. But some recent develop, political developments kind of make, you know, make me a little bit more cautious. Like it was really a defender of everything you said, but uh, with the data um, about the um, menstruation cycle of women in states where now abortion is illegal and hunting down women that um, that still want to have an abortion or have an abortion uh, to prosecute them is just one example. So if laws change and politics change, it's really easy to weaponize um, that information. And it doesn't even have to be weaponized uh, radically. Let's say we are in a longer term recession and um, there's really no way we can afford everyone to have precise medicine. Um, and you can know from the data sets, um, let's say in your family, early onset dementia is quite common. Uh, maybe, you know, genes related to cognition are not the best ones. You could, in a more authoritarian regime, calculate, okay, that child, let's not invest too much for too long in education because it won't be someone that's very productive for very long. So let's say you train them as a neurosurgeon they will stay productive maybe for another eight years or 10 years and then it will decline quite rapidly or maybe parkinson is quite common in that family and so on so you know the data we let people collect now from us could affect our future generations if kind of political climate change climate changes but also actually climate change changes because that will stress a lot of governments around the world economically quite significantly and this usually doesn't lead to like a freer and better and more generous world usually yeah, yeah um oh sorry okay i'll go first and lisa you can come in uh so you know while you're speaking uh, a couple of thoughts came to mind one would be, um, first of all, from a scientific perspective, some of the hypothetical misuse of genetic information, I don't think it's a, they're very solid to begin with. Take, for example, a theory that, oh, there's a gene that uh, you have a family gene uh, from past from your grandfather, grandmother, blah, 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 and that gene is going to be causing you Alzheimer's, right? And then therefore we should uh, attribute less resources, uh, sort of like a eugenics kind of approach. You know, for one thing, I think scientifically, I don't see there's a, a particular a, a clear a correlation between a gene to the final outcome of someone. You know, I use a sickle cell anemia as a single gene a disease, very rarely uh, Alzheimer's or something like that. So even scientifically, someone cannot really show me, even assuming I'm buying into the eugenics approach that, oh, you know, just because having this gene, that person is going to be horrible contributor to society. That is so not true because it's multivariable. You know, this person may have a higher risk in this particular gene, presumably, uh, with the data we have, but 
there's like a hundred other possible factors that would make that person much more productive and suitable and contributing factor to the society. So I think, you know, I, number one, we have to, there's very few scientific evidence to support that kind of approach that, oh, a gene, have, you, know, you have, if you have this gene, this marker, you're going to be a terrible person to the world. Uh, that, that is very, very uh, rare. I haven't seen anything like that. But even assuming that were true, for example, sickle cell anemia, let's just use that example. Still, I think in our existing society, we do have tools to leverage, uh, to use to preventing, to prevent something like the drug happening. For example, there can be prohibition of discriminating against people with a sickle cell anemia-ish gene, if you will. And uh, I'm, I'm still hopeful that in many civilized societies, uh, this type of um, uh, eugenic type of uh, considered philosophy they're not going to fly very, you know, easily, if you will. Uh, maybe there are a few countries in the world that this could be possible, but uh, you know, uh, the, for it, for for that to be accepted uh, broadly in worldwide, that is very very difficult. Um, no, no matter how poor or rich you are. So I think the analogy I was thinking, maybe it's not quite that fitting, is a nuclear uh, a fusion, if you will, a fission, if you will. You know that could be utilized uh, as a for as an atomic bomb to kill people, but again, on the other hand, uh, it can be utilized for energy uh, production, if you will. So it's a matter of uh, how to use the science. I guess I'm in the camp of not uh, supporting. Uh, killing a scientific research or discovery for the fear that it might be utilized in a negative way. Uh, I think we as humans, as a society, uh, should encourage, you know, discovery and invention, but uh, be also responsible enough to uh, manage and regulate how, uh, you know, ethically we want to utilize or leverage that creation or invention uh, in a way that's positive uh, for the society uh, versus, you know, uh, negative in whichever definition you use that word for the society. So you can call that a bit of a idealistic or optimistic, but you know, knowing uh, what I know about uh, the laws as a, as, a, as a tool, as well as the, you know, the, the various different countries that I've worked at, I still am relatively positive that you know, a good scientific discovery and invention, uh, such as uh, personalized medicine, such as you know, CRISPR, et cetera, could be utilized in a positive and ethical way. Yeah, so I see the situation a little bit differently in that I think it's most likely that insurance, I mean, insurance companies are very practiced at um, evaluating risk. And so you probably will pay a premium that is slightly different based on you have this gene and it is, you know, X more risk, you know, uh, averse than the other and you'll therefore have to pay, you know, and, and we already accept that kind of as a, uh, just a de facto in, in the current system. And then the other thing is that I'm a little bit worried that this ship has already sailed because the U.S. government, as well as the NSA, and yeah, the British government's uh, health service have made agreements already with um, Palantir for the health data of the citizens. And there was also the one with Israel and the vaccine for data agreement. Um, so I feel like this cat is already out of the bag. That data has already been handed over and probably evaluated. And, you know, there's machine learning right now working on what things are, you know, risk um, 
yeah, what risks they can determine and what associations and correlations they can make between, you know, a person's um, particular health data and, you know, the total data set. So I'm less, I'm much less optimistic, unfortunately. I do agree, though, that we ought to be thinking about ways of regulating this, um, in particular because I don't believe it's the case we'll be able to hide in large numbers anymore. There was uh, recently the Australian government released, I think it was 10% of their citizens' health data that was supposed to be anonymized, and it took machine learning researchers, I think, six weeks to re-identify the people in the data set. So we really need to, um, you know, think about these things and we ought to be moving a lot more rapidly if we do want to protect the data because once it's out there, there's no getting it back. Um, yeah. Um, Mina and Omar, did you have something to add? I think we're closing the room soon, at least for me, it's like 12.35 a.m. So, uh, yeah, please go ahead uh, if you want to share something. Yeah, and um, hello, my name is, is Mina. Um, in reference to private privacy or, or HIPAA data, Healthcare Health Information Privacy Act data, and also FERPA information, uh, um, those are two protected categories of information. From an information science point of view, um, from info, from information system point of view, the only way to separate them is to physically separate them in two different databases, which is very expensive. Not all, not all, not all governments have the ability to do this. Only companies like Oracle or, or SAP have the ability to do this, unless it's a very small data, small data set. Then you might be able to use, use it. I'm just saying that the technical capabilities of anonymizing the data is limited by the, the amount of, of, um, of technology that, you, that, you, that is available to the to the to the analyst. Yeah, I agree. And isn't it the problem that most companies in the end use AWS for all kinds of stuff in the background? Uh, they put their APIs on there, and data runs through those. So. I know that in theory they shouldn't, you know, they don't collect it and so on, but I don't know if that's really the case and, you know, from the practical side. But I know that a lot of like health companies and in the end AWS dealing with, you know, <laughs> it's just so cheap, so much cheaper than anything else. So, um, yeah. Omar, did, did you have something that you wanted to share or? Oh, Katrina, it was lovely listening and uh, today the information was really good. I was amazed to listen today. Thank you. Uh, as of now, no questions, but if there would be anything, I would really definitely come up with that. Thank you, Katrina, and uh, thanks everybody. Yeah, thank you for being here and um... A special thank you and for being like the marathon guest speaker here is uh, Dr. Hagai. Hagai. <laughs> 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 
I, I hope by next time I'll learn your name and I hope you come back. So I'm implying sure. I'm being very <laughs> But Kater, Katerina, you know, this is Clubhouse. You should say Dr. Shahab, right? Yes. We, we call people by the name that's showing on the screen. So you're okay, Katerina. Okay, thank you. <laughs> it was really... Yeah, thank you guys thanks for inviting me. It was really... Nice to be here, and thanks for your comments and questions. Yeah, you had such a broad knowledge, you know, like it was such a pleasure having you here, and you had so much patience with us and answering all these different questions, <laughs> you know, from engineering to melatonin and what materials to use. It was amazing. So, thank you so much. Um, and yeah, I hope we hear you someday again and uh, feel free to come back <laughs> for sure. any discussions we have and uh, yeah it was it was really amazing so thank you so much for for being here and coming sure thank you Al. yeah and thank you everyone for coming asking questions participating sharing so much in the chat this will be an amazing replay with so much resources uh, for people to look up that's really valuable and that's why i like using clubhouse um, for recordings because all these links will still be available in the future and yeah if people will listen to it and will read all the papers they will have like i don't know half of a master degree <laughs> <laughs> Okay, so thank you um, and thank you everyone and have a good night or a good morning or wherever you are around the world and um, I hear you all back soon, I hope. Tomorrow we have a room, um, a physics room um, with Dr. Ren and Dr. Chang. Well, yeah, physics engineering, they discovered a new material for a semiconductor that is better than silicon so uh, and it will be at 2 p.m est um so yeah maybe uh everyone can come back or uh if not then we'll hear you maybe next week again so thank you so much everyone have a good night thank you so much for the lovely and very insightful rooms katarina and dr something I'm looking forward to actually I, I've been in the room but uh, I'm looking forward to re, um, listen to the recording again to uh, to memorize things I have to make a notes <laughs> Thank you. Okay. the same thing here great great room Katarina uh, one thing I just want to say Dr. Shahab you know you have a great last name because, you know, if I were searching a particular publication or a patent as an inventor, it's a wonderful name. I really hate it when people's name are like Smith or Lee or something. It's terrible. You can never find that person. <laughs> but with your name, you have a huge advantage of standing out. But thank you. I'm looking forward to uh, maybe more conversations in later, later sure. times. Thank you. I agree. You And thank you so much, Ben, for that. And uh, <laughs> I agree. It's, it's really good. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. <laughs> okay, I'll close the room in three, two, one. Bye, everyone. Thank Bye. you. Thank you.